Hola. Hola, Charlito. Charlito. Hola, Charlie. Hey Charlie. Okay, Charlie. Is your name Charles? It's Charlie, not Charles. Your good brother Jason Rosario, <laughs> as I affectionately call him, Hassan. How are you, Chip? Yeah, bro. I'm, I'm good, man. I feel centered. I feel focused. Word. I feel powerful. Okay. Okay. Um, and I'm just grateful to be here, man. Yo, I'm proud of you, brother. Thank you, man. We've been talking about this for a while. We have. We have. It's taken me a long time to get here, but yeah. but I'm here. Yeah. You know, you, you know, we've talked about expressing or finding ways and outlets to express your creative sensibilities. Right. You know, right. and I think, like any creative, right? We we always second guess it we always doubt it we're yeah. always like yes it's not the right time you know but I'm, I'm i'm proud that you just took the leap man and you did it and you've seen this thing grow in such a short amount of time man and i'm just incredibly proud of you man. thank so. you brother you know it just took time it took time and it took time for me to actually look my look at myself in the mirror and say um the excuse that i was giving myself is that i lack time now what is my excuse mm. and um so I realized that I had to do work on myself. I had to, you know, go to war with those demons, with those uh, self-doubts. Mm. And I did that, man, and I came out victorious. That's it, bro. Thankfully, man. Well, don't we always? Yeah, right? we do. You know, and it takes us a while, and sometimes we don't learn the lesson of our, of our power um, because we continue to go through obstacles, and, you know, and we get into it, we get into this funk, knowing that we're going to come out doing well yeah. we're gonna come out victorious so uh yeah thankfully for that man but yo i love you bro i miss Dude, you bro. one of my go-to's <laughs> when the gray skies are stalking me you know likewise um, i feel the same way brother and and to be clear you know there is not enough time on one episode for us to talk about all of our stories all of our war stories right. all of our lessons all of our just experiences with each other. We just have too much history. Yeah. But we'll try, right? We can, we can start. We give people the highlights. Exactly. There we go. There we go, man. So you're feeling fresh? I feel good, man. I, I am really, really grateful and, and so excited to have this conversation because I'm sure we're going to go deep. We're going to go wide. We're going to go up. We're going to go down. And right. We're going to give the people what they want. Exactly. So let's, let's rock out. Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. Last I saw you was about a few weeks ago at Playa de Carmen. We were... Hanging out in the beach, you know, we had our, our toes in the sand, and now we're getting our shoes scuffed <laughs> in this concrete jungle. Facts. Man. You know, or or getting our our toes, uh, you know, stubbed on our way to the kitchen right. since everyone is uh, <laughs> working virtually. Home. Yeah, man. I mean, Mexico was such a great time, and you know, thanks for pulling up, and thanks to the the fellows Kevin and and um, Andre for pulling up as well because. You know, I was out there for a month with the fam, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it was uh, such a needed trip. Uh, it actually turned, it went from when I originally conceived the trip to a getaway. I just needed to change the scenery. I was going through a lot of stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into. And then it turned into a birthday trip, and then it morphed into a celebratory trip, right. you know, celebrating the job, and then a family trip. Right. So it was just, it was, it was an, an amazing time, and I was out there at the perfect time. And, you know, I, I think we, we were there just for a short amount of time. Like, you know, you're only there for a couple of days, but... As always, right, when it comes to us, we 
we connect even if it's for an hour and we and we just we just transcend conversations right. and universes man and um and so I'm, i was grateful for that right right and i was grateful for you for knowing all the great restaurants <laughs> that we, we ate good you know we ate good we ate really was, good you know we were on a winning streak <laughs> you know yeah. so many gems shared and actually i want to talk to you about one of the gems that you shared in one yeah. of the dinners i think it was the first dinner uh but but we'll talk about mm-hmm. that a little later you know, before we get into it, you know, you went out there to Mexico for one whole month. Was there something that you were looking for in Mexico? And did you find it? Or mm. was it just simple relaxation that you was looking yeah, for? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was looking for something. I didn't necessarily knew, know that at the time. Um, but I was in search of truth. Mm. And and when I say truth, I, I capitalize truth because it's it's a noun. Mm. It's a person, place, or a thing, in my, in my view. And... Um, you know, truth about myself, truth about what I believe to be true, what I hold near and dear, about life, about who I've been, who I am, who I want to be. And uh, and so I went there with a lot of questions. And while I didn't come back with all the answers that I thought I was going to get, I came back with the right answers mm-hmm. uh, or the right insights. Right. And um, and so, yeah, I think it, it, it was a powerful trip. Um, and I mean that in more ways than one, right. uh, which we uh, won't get into uh, on this because I know this is going to be shared publicly. But right. uh, it was it was a wonderful trip, and um, you know, aside from having the time to reflect and think in a, in such a magical place, the the fact that I was able to connect and be with my family for a full month, right? I mean, that was a blessing in and of itself, you know. So. Some of the some of the insights that I gained about myself came through them, mm. unbeknownst to them. Right. Um, and so it was funny because a lot of people would be like, "Oh, well, weren't you killing each other after the second week?" And it was like, "No, we we, what you see on Instagram and on social media as far as our connection, our bond, right, is is what it is in real life." And so, to me, it was just the the perfect uh, bookend to a lot of things that I was going on. It was going on in my life, and then a, a perfect. Um, new chapters resetting um, as I enter this new phase of my life. That's great, man. But yeah. did you go in there like with an intention, like, okay, this is how I was going to arrive at that point? Like, was it? Uh, did you tell yourself you're gonna you're gonna read a lot on a vacation? Mm-hmm. Did you tell Did you tell yourself that you were going to be open to having different types of conversations with your mother, with your siblings, yeah. um, or were you just like had no agenda? You just yeah. went and. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit of both. I think okay. I, you know I did have an intention to to do some reflection, to do some work on myself, to continue to do the things that I do on a daily basis right, right. now, right? Whether it's journaling and, and meditation and uh, and reading, there was a certain intention around making sure that I cleared my head going into this new job, right? For sure. But then outside of that, very quickly I learned that while I may have had goals around the types of conversations perhaps that I wanted to have with my mom or my right. my siblings. Uh, I quickly learned that the best way to approach those things was just organically. Right. Um, and so I kind of quickly let, just let go of control. And I think that's what a place like Mexico, and that specifically when you're in a uh, frame of mind, um, what, what tends to happen is that we have all these plans in our minds and the ways that we want to kind of, you know, uh, execute our lives. And you quickly realize that you just have to plug into flow and allow things to just happen as they are, as, right. as they may be. Right, right. And so right. that's what happened to me very early on. Yeah, the same thing happened to me when I traveled with Dre and uh, Kev. It was more of a, we didn't even have to talk. It was like, we all appreciated our mornings. It wasn't even a conversation. Uh, you know, we all got up, we, we all did our, our own thing. 
some of us uh, went to the beach and did yoga. Some of us just stayed in the room and started reading. Uh, but it was great to see that uh, we were on the same page. And that page had something to do with like leaving New York, yeah. leaving this mass information, uh, you know, and, and just like disconnecting, you know, and I think we did a good job of that. Think about full circle moment. The last time you and I were both in Mexico was in Cancun. That's what I'm telling you. Right, right, exactly. So it takes a different type of mentality for you to say, you know what, no, this is what I'm going there for. You know, how many times, you know, and I've talked about this in in other episodes, uh, I think it was with JP and Fonte, you know, how many times when we were were younger, uh, you know, not to say that we're old, but when (laughs) we were younger, right, um, you know, brothers would just get lost on vacations yeah. and we would you know it would be a great opportunity for us to connect yeah. for us to ask each other questions you know whatever we were going through in, in life but the first thing was to okay like with the you know with the ladies at with the drinks at and next to you know um you know that opportunity is lost but anyway so we're back in new york yeah. um we probably won another vacation after the debate oh my god <laughs> So, what are your thoughts on the debate, man? Painful, man. I I chose to watch the whole thing. Um, I immediately wanted to turn it off after the first 30 minutes, mm-hmm. or 30 seconds. Uh, but I had to watch it for a variety of reasons. But, I, you know, it's what have we come to where you see three older white men arguing and raising their voices and exhibiting the very toxic patriarchy masculinity that we often talk about right. um, for the world to see that is what we've come to in our country and it, and it was shameful and I think once someone I heard someone say this uh, one of the pundits is that the, the true loser of the debate were the American people for sure and I think that's yeah, just that's a shame so you know it, it's and I wonder also and I think there's a New York Times article that talked about this too is, is what is the utility of these debates going forward do we really need them um, are they really adding to the political process, the political experience that, we, that we're all enduring and experiencing? Right. And so I, I just don't know. So I don't know. I know that there are two more uh, on the books and the schedules. I don't know if I'm going to tune in. Right. Uh, I don't even know if they're going to move forward with it. Uh, there's some talks around. Some talks around uh, changing the regulations, yeah. Uh, yeah. being able to silent a mic yeah. when the other person is speaking. Maybe that would work. Yeah, that would work. But I just feel like overall... We didn't leave, we didn't watch that for an hour and a half and walk away smarter right, about or more informed about the issues. Of and to so. me, that was just, that was a shame. Right, yeah. right. Um, to me, it was, it was just terrible. I agree with your sentiment. I, I felt Biden could have had a bit more uh, progressive folks in his ear. Um, he had missed opportunities to actually... Um, you know, move with language that, that, you know, that motivated the people to, you know, vote for him, those that were on the sidelines, those that weren't really quite decided on him um, when he was, I, I don't even know if he said the word super predator, but when he was approached with that comment uh, that he allegedly made, uh, I think that was an opportunity for him to say, you know, I've evolved. Mm-hmm. Even if I didn't say it, you know, we know that you've probably done policies. No, we, we know, not that you probably, we know that you've done policies that, ha- that have affected communities of color in the past. Uh, and, you know, tell me how different you are from that person. Yeah. You know, and I think he missed, he dropped the ball. Well, well, why did he drop the ball, right? He dropped the ball 
in large part because he couldn't get there, right? right. He wasn't allowed to get there. Right. He wasn't allowed to get there, yeah. You know, blustering personality. But then the other part of it is, you know, Joe Biden is, um, is a tried-and-true politician. And he's been in the, in the business, right, because it is a business, for 40-plus years. And so right. you can't really teach an old dog new tricks. Right. And so while the, the 2020 political process and election is, is not 2012, it's not 2016, and it's calling for a different type of politician that's able to kind of navigate those conversations in nuanced ways, and I just don't think he was prepared. So I think he prepared to debate uh, a Mitt Romney. Right. He didn't prepare to debate a Donald Trump. He, yeah, he wasn't prepared. He was trying to take the high road with the most unpresidential president 100%. we have probably ever seen. 100%. Right. But he did have some good moments. I would say uh, he could have done a lot better in explaining his plan for helping small business owners and the people. You know, I think his good moments were that whenever he spoke about the people, he looked directly in the, in the camera. As opposed to Trump, Trump was just looking at, at Biden as if he was a pit bull, you know, or a bulldog. Um, but he had some good moments. And, and yes, I did. I think anyone would have been overwhelmed by Trump's barbaric, bar, barbaric behavior, you know, and the things that he was saying, the personal attacks, mm -hmm. family members. I don't know. Like someone brings up your son. Having a drug addiction, and that's the one. It takes <laughs> that's for for Joe Biden in particular. That topic is super sensitive, and and you know, so I think we all have our buttons and our our, our you know trigger uh, trigger things that we can't just as much as we want to stay cool, we just can't avoid. Um, but I think he should. He, you know, he knew that was coming. Right. Uh, I would have wanted to see him. I think that's what you're saying as well. I would have wanted to see him, kind of maybe push back push through the, the blustering and the kind of the bullying from Trump, hit back where appropriate, right? Because right. you still want to see a little bit of sparring and a little bit of fight in him. But I think even with that, some of his answers, even when he had time to talk, weren't as crisp. Right. And that, and that concerned me. So and Yeah, that's when I say I think there could have been more yeah, progressive yeah. folks yeah. in his ear. Absolutely, 100%. So I know some folks that would have knocked those questions out of the park. Mm -hmm. But um, that's what we that's what you have to choose from. Though. Yeah, that's what we do. You know, just to give him a little bit of props before we, we stop talking about mm -hmm. them. He did. He did address the COVID pandemic. And again, he looked at people. He looked in the camera. He spoke to the people directly about that. You know, as opposed to Trump, I didn't hear any plan from Trump. All I heard was on anything, you know, bragging about things that people tell him he's great at or mm -hmm. he, he was he was great at. And that's it. Like he didn't really say anything specific to how he was going to help small business owners, how he was going to help just people in general. Yeah, what well, he did say, he brought back football. Yeah, you know? <laughs> he did so bring again. back football, right. But, I, you know, I think going back to 2016, he didn't have a plan either. Right. Right. I think his, his plan was shock and awe. And, and in large part, part of, part of the reason he won is because he was so anti-establishment that people were just ready for something different whatever right. that was right so I, I you know i didn't expect trump to lay out a, a plan for the future he hasn't done it ever yeah so. uh, i've done mock trials uh, you know i've been in adversarial positions in court and i must say the hardest thing to ever defend against is a person coming at you with conspiracy theories and unrelated facts you know, obviously in court is different because you would have to judge them. The judge would, you know, get involved. But think about that. Like, how do you prepare for that?
for an enemy that has no rules, that doesn't no abide rules. by rules. Right. Or just creates it. Or creates, creates rules, yeah, yeah, as they go. It creates facts as yeah. as he goes, right? It's rare for Trump to surprise me, but you know, whenever an artist drops a, a new album, it's like, all right, it's yeah. it's different, but it's the same, right? And Trump is like that every single time he gets uh, in front of the camera. Uh, two things that struck me uh, from from what Trump had to say was his lack of denouncing white supremacists. He could have said it right then and there. And the way he chose to uh, step away from that question said a lot, spoke volumes. Uh, many of us would say that we knew that, mm -hmm. but to do it on a global, on a national stage like that. A global stage. On a global stage, because yeah. I'm sure, you know, there's so many countries are watching what we're doing right now. It hit me different. But the second thing that I wanted uh, to talk to you about, because this relates to you and struck me as well as, um, wow, like this is not a new era, but this is a different climate, a climate that you've never seen before. Um, when Trump uh, spoke about his uh, federal ban on racial sensitivity training um, on a federal level, like what do you think about that and how would that affect the industry? Yeah, great question. Um, that is something that we've talked about internally, right, at, at work is what is the implication of his presidential order on our industry, on our clients, and then on our industry? So thank God we've done some some uh, internal uh, work, and we're not affected by it in terms of we don't have clients that are government. We don't have government contracts, right? Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, we're free and clear. the The issue is is the perception around diversity training, as as he puts it, a, a racist. Um, a racist um, but he indoctrination. Said, he said anti-American. Anti well, he said anti-American before, but at the at the debate, mm -hmm. he said it was racism. Mm -hmm. So he's talking yeah. about reverse racism. The, this classic case of re re reverse racism. I right. think it's look. It's a headline. It's it's meant to distract and it's meant to confuse. Uh, we actually did. We went and we looked. We had legal look at his actual order and it. They came back and they said it was poorly written, mm -hmm. um, and when push comes to shove, it would be hard to enforce. Right. So, and this is from legal counsel, right? The other part of it is we're not seeing any government agencies rushing to implement the order. Mm -hmm. So, I think fundamentally, what we're talking about when it comes to diversity training and the things that he's talking about banning, it, it you know, look, racism sensitivity training is at its core about helping people understand other people. Right. That's all it is. Right. Um, what's wow. so anti-American about that? What's anti-American? I think what he's referring to is when we're talking about patriarchy and toxic masculinity, right? When he talked about, oh, we can't uh, pigeonhole men. When he's talking about, uh, when we talk about white privilege, right. he's like, oh, you can't, you know. So this classic, when we talk about classic racial theory, um, what he's trying to do is turn that on its head and say that it is... And uh, not patriotic, not patriotic for for his base, right? Because right. his base has a certain ideology, and so I think that's where it comes from. But mm -hmm. I don't think, from an enforceability standpoint, it's, it's anything that we need to worry about. It's something that, unfortunately, we have has real implications in the short term, because right. we we do have to be mindful of government agencies pushing back and being mindful about the training that we put together. But I don't think long term it'll be an issue. Right, right. I'm I'm just concerned. Uh, about all the kids, all the families that watch that, um, seeing their president say 
that uh, racial sensitivity training is something that is anti-American. You know, so you're, you're telling white families all over the, the globe that have probably never even encountered someone of color to not question how they've been oppressed in some way, some fashion. Uh, so, you know, I know, look, we could go on and yeah, on yeah. talking about Trump, right? But uh, the reason I brought that up, one, because it, it triggered me because it's, it's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, and, but second, because we were celebrating uh, you know, a momentous occasion, right, in, in, in uh, Mexico, and that was you getting uh, a new position. And talk to me about that position because yeah, it deals with diversity. Yeah, thank you. So I'm grateful to have been named the Global Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at BBDO. So BBDO is one of the largest um, advertising agencies uh, inside of the Omnicom umbrella. Mm. And, um, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's momentous in the sense that I'm the first person appointed to that role. At that agency, um, the agency is the most awarded advertising agency in the world. Um, so, from a, from an iconic standpoint, you know that the, that is the agency to be at, right? For for many reasons, right. but for me, what it meant is just a culmination of kind of all the work that I've done to this point. You know, building, bringing to fruition, and bringing to bear not just the work that I've done with the lives of men over the last few years, right? right. But my corporate training. And I definitely finance. want to talk to you about the work that yeah. you've done at the lives of yeah. men. Yeah, let's let's come back to that. Um, you know, all of the the training uh, that I got in finance, living in Switzerland, right. the MBA. Like I, I was thinking about this in Mexico as well. So it's like, wow, um, the way that the universe prepares you for things in your life, yeah. where only in hindsight can you make those connections. But while it's happening, while you're going through it, you're just like you just maybe not see, you may not see the the reasoning or the the objective behind you experiencing certain things until it's in hindsight. Right. So yeah, so the the role itself is um, the first time that they elevate someone to the C level, uh, and the role is really the remit is to make sure that we do a couple things. One is to look at ingraining diverse principles and inclusive principles into everything that we do fundamentally at the agency. So that's everything from recruiting to making sure that we're, we're bringing in diverse talent, um, LGBTQ folks, people of color, women, right. um, veterans, etc., um, all the way through to helping to make sure that the creative work that we do for our clients um, is inclusive. And that, to me, is the fun part. Because mm -hmm. when you look at advertising, when you look at media, when you look at tech, um, we are the narrators of our history and our culture, right? When we take in messages, when we're watching television, those are ads, those are, that, that content is produced by an agency. And if that agency doesn't have inclusive principles ingrained in their work, of course, that's gonna be reflected in, um, in the work. And so that's why we've grown up, all of us, right? Without this, this uh, clear, um, vision of representation of people that look like you and I at the highest levels of, of whether it's media, tech, entertainment, et cetera, because the stories that have been told have not had us in mind. Right. And so my job in large part is to influence that process to make sure that we're not only telling stories that are reflective of the world that we live in today, but that we start to shape the stories of the world that we want to live in in the future. And that's amazing work. 
I can only imagine how a young man seeing himself in a commercial, in a movie, in in a positive light, can can impact the way he views himself. Like that's why Barack Obama, the image of Barack Obama, was so powerful for so many of us. Um, I applaud you for that because uh, diversity, especially in media, is definitely uh, needed. I have a question as to diversity in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Why is diversity in the workplace so important? Is it because of those? decisions that have to be made in order to show diverse experiences on you know on the media platform yeah. okay well yeah i mean that's part of it uh, there, there have been studies uh, numerous studies whether from the harvards to the mckinsey's of the world that have shown that diversity is good for business and for right. the bottom line right okay. so the more diverse your company is the more money you'll make it's important because of that fact but it's also important because we need to ensure that the work that we're doing reflects the world that we live in. Mm. The other part of it is I don't personally think that diversity is the most important part of what I do. Okay. Right? I am the chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Okay. So let's break that down. Yeah, break that down. So the diversity piece is simply let's hire, you know, diverse people. Let's bring in from pe- people from different backgrounds. Right. The inclusion piece is, okay, once they're in... How do we make sure that they feel included? Okay. How do they feel like? How do we make sure that they feel like they belong? Of course. So that they can just be themselves, right? Yeah. The equity piece is the important piece because that speaks to the policies and the procedures that are in place or may not be in place to make sure that those diverse people are being treated fairly. Of course. So you bring in X number of black talent, and you make sure that they're included because you're giving them good work, you're promoting them, etc. But if you're not paying them and if you're not committed to their career development, there's a lack of equity there. And so to me, that's the most important part of my right. job is to and make that's sure. that's what I wanted to speak to you about, right? Long term, long term, if I leave BBDO and people say this is a place that treated me fairly and I had an equal opportunity to do and to grow my career and be successful, I've done my job. Not necessarily Jason during his time here hired X number of people. That People come and go, right? Uh, I think the equity piece is an important piece. Right. I, I would hate to, to think that CEOs are, are looking to, to, to folks like you and they're like, where you know, where can we rent black folks for, you know, mm-hmm. for cheap, for, mm-hmm. you know, for low low, you know, because uh, if it is quantifiable, it is determined that, that businesses do make profit um, when they have diverse talent. I just want to make sure that the reason they're making profit isn't because they're paying lower wages as a result of this diverse talent. Well, it depends, right? I think the reason they're making more profit is not necessarily because they're paying lower wages, but it's because our communities control a large amount of buying power. The Latino community alone controls $1.6 trillion in buying power. The African-American black community controls $1.5 trillion. The Latino community right now is 13% of the population. By 2026, we're going to be 26% 26% of the population mm. right now. So, so think about that. So of course it's good for business to be diverse because you have to talk to those markets that have the dollars to spend. Right. And, and by the way, we're the ones that consume the most, right? So when you look at um, Latinos and you look at black and African-American, you look at white folks and Asians, we are the ones that are, are the, the largest uh, consumer group in that category, right? We're the, we're the ones that consume um, media and content at the largest rates right. we're, and we're consuming it on an iPhone so when you think about our consumption patterns and the amount of money that's available to companies to tap into 
it behooves them to be like, okay, how do we talk to those people? Right. And the way you talk to those people is to create work that's relevant to those people. And how do you create work that's relevant to those people? Then you bring them in-house to create that work. Right. And right. that's the diversity piece. That's why it's important. Right, of course, of course. Aside um, from the equity stuff. Right? Aside from the equity, and the equity is extremely important because the, the racial uh, pay gap is, is wide. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, uh, you know, for black Americans, for black males, they make 87 cents to... Uh, the dollar of uh, of a white man with the same qualifications. Uh, I think for Hispanics is ninety one cents a dollar compared to the dollar of a of a white man and with the same qualifications. And we want to talk about women. Forget about we're we're in the seventy cents room. Uh, if we want to talk about black women, we're probably at sixty seven cents or, or something close to that mm-hmm. compared uh, to the dollar that the uh, white male gets with the same qualifications. So uh, you know that's great to hear that uh, you are put in a position to also focus on that, um, you know, and going back now to what you said about making folks that come from diverse backgrounds feel comfortable in the workplace. Not comfortable. Not well, comfortable. Not feel comfortable. Included, feel included. Feel like they belong there. Okay. And, and the reason, I just want to know why you, why you drive that distinction. Because comfort is... Belonging is... Because I agree with you, but I just want to know why. Yeah, no, I think, you know, comfort comes and goes, right? right? You can be comfortable one day in doing your job and and uncomfortable the next. But if you feel like generally, over the course of your employment in this place, you feel like you're given projects that are meaty, that are uh, sufficiently taking advantage of your talents, that you're given an opportunity to grow, for the most part, over time, you're going to feel like, okay, you know, this is a... A, a great place to be, right? Right. Um, if you don't have that, then you don't feel like you're contributing. Don't feel like you're part of the larger organization. Then you're just an employee, just a number. Right. And I think that's why it's different. It's it's not necessarily about comfort. Just like, and I want to make a distinction going back to this equity piece. It's there's a difference between equity and equality, mm-hmm. right? The difference is equity says, I'm going to give you what you need based on where you started. Right. Because we know we recognize that I started in a different place than you did. Equality is I'm going to give everybody the same thing. Right. If you give everybody the same thing, you're not taking into account their unique position. Of course. Right. So some people start uh, with a head start. Some people don't. And so I think that's the important piece. Same thing with uh, with comfort. Right. It's not necessarily about being comfortable. It's about feeling like you're included. And thank you for that distinction, because uh, I guess in feeling empowered, you would think that as a result of that, people feel comfortable. But right. Feeling included is is, is what we. Um, it's a longer term feeling. Right. And, and with that, you know, in your work, do you see that uh, folks of color in those corporate spaces where they may be the one or two in the room? Do you see that there is a need for them to be mentored? And if so, what does that look like? 100%. So I've been doing a lot of of speaking engagements around the topic of psychological safety Mm. and mental health and the importance of, and the responsibility, more importantly, that companies have to create a space where their employees feel psychologically safe. Is training, code switching is training to the extent. You know, it could really take you out your zone. Part of it, 100%. And, And that's part of it, right? So... The reason I'm saying psychological safety is because we're dealing with a dual pandemic right now, a triple pandemic. We're dealing with COVID-19, we're dealing with COVID-45, right. right, as Tamika Mallory put it, and then we're also dealing with um, civil unrest and systemic racism. So when you think about uh, people of color, black folks, Latino folks, Latinx folks, Hispanics, uh, 
Um, it's important for companies to create an environment of safety and psychological safety at that for them because we're experiencing trauma in, in, in ways unseen before, right. in e every day. And it's to the point where we're now at month 67 of this pandemic of 2020, it feels like month 67, and it feels like every day, every hour of the day, we have to contend with something new. You know, we don't have enough time to, to grieve one police murder before another one occurs. So yeah, it's absolutely necessary for companies to think about that and to think about how am I, how is the organization playing a part in creating an environment where our employees just feel safe? Right. Safe physically, safe emotionally, and safe psychologically. Right. And have you seen it been done successfully? I know uh, you're involved what is in the work now. Successful is where the morale between the folks that come from diverse backgrounds is pretty high. They feel included, like you mentioned. Um, they're also highly performing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a function of a lot of things. I, I don't. I can't say. And I'm going to also be. You know the 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 revolutionary in me, the activist in me, will never say that there's one person, one company, one brand getting it right. Right. Because uh, there's always room for improvement. But what I will say is that, and, and especially not now, right? Because it's, you know, again, we're dealing with all these, these different issues at the same time. Um, but I will say that there are companies that are trying um, mm. and that are doing their best. Right. And I think it's just, you know, but there's no one solve for it, for any of it. We just have to, you know, do our best to to make sure that we're acknowledging what companies can do, and then more importantly, more importantly, instead of signaling these these virtues, right, and putting out public statements of solidarity, right, when something else happens, it's how are your policies in place? To if you do say you're about Black Lives Matter, mm. then are you also about promoting your Black talent? Are you also about paying your black talent? Right. right. So it's not just stepping out in social for social causes. You got to live in those values as well. And whenever I think about diversity, the first thing that comes to mind is race and gender, right? Mm -hmm. But there's all different types there's of multiple, diversity, yeah. right? There's ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also sexual orientation, empowering uh, members from the LGBT, yeah. right? There's a physical disability. Mm -hmm. There's also, I would imagine, um, other types of disabilities mm -hmm. that aren't physical mm -hmm. that uh that companies may consider that diverse mm -hmm. is that your experience that, that companies tend to go beyond race and gender in thinking about their diversity part, part of the work is to try to expand the definition of diversity okay. for for folks for companies i think in the diversity space those of us who are dni practitioners have a good grasp of the intersectionality of identities and how that contributes to diversity so you can be a black woman who's also queer who's also differently abled, right? Mm -hmm. So you you now have the triple whammy, right? You're a woman, woman of color, you're disabled, right? So, and then you're in the LGBTQ community. So part of my job is to dimensionalize diversity to include, you know, things like age, right? Things like immigration status. Mm -hmm. Think about the privilege afforded to us as American citizens versus a friend of ours who's an immigrant. Right. That is a dimension of diversity. Mental health is something that you and I are very passionate about. That is a dimension of diversity. Those folks that may have or suffer from ADHD uh, or OCD or other, you know, um, mental health issues, that's a dimension of diversity as well. So that conversation will always evolve, right? right. But I think it's part of my job to help educate people around that. You know, do you see yourself uh, seeing companies also take into consideration diversity of education? 
yeah. And I say that yeah. to say, you know, for example, as an attorney, um, you see big law corporations only want to recruit Ivy League mm-hmm. uh, law students. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, as far as, I'm you know, obviously that's their company and, and they probably want to, like, showcase that to their clients. But, like, do you see that? And, and what's being done for that? Because I think that also speaks to a socioeconomic mm-hmm. diversity. Yeah. Uh, you know, how many yeah. kids do we know that were very smart but weren't in a stable environment growing up and as a result of that they couldn't get to that high school which then you know uh, didn't provide them the access to that college or that university it's about tearing down barriers to success for people that come from underrepresented communities and you ask me what's being done the tech industry is leading that really really well so a couple years ago google and facebook did away with their their college degree requirement they were like you don't need to work at Google or Facebook. You don't need a college degree. And that's been, you know, a lot of people are following that now. Mm. So even us at the advertising level, um, we're looking at talent that are not, that's not, that's not necessarily college degree or maybe even comes from a two-year degree, right? But I think it's, it's you know, widening, widening the aperture as it relates to how we're looking at people. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think that's another form of diversity as well. And I think companies are realizing that. And then enacting policies to make sure that they, they, uh, they hold true to that. Right. That's awesome, man. Because, uh, you know, when I think about that kind of diversity, and this movie doesn't necessarily speak to socioeconomic diversity. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Uh, I think it's called um, I Feel Pretty by Amy Schumer. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, so it was a movie. It was actually a pretty good movie, man. I was, you know, I was forced <laughs> to watch it. Um, rom-com? Is it yeah. A rom-com? No, it's not even. Is there, all I know is that she was... Trying to get a job. I don't even remember. I think she got the guy. I think she, I, I'm sure there was a guy. So this one dealt with um, her wanting to get her dream job at a fashion company, right? But the problem is that the fashion company was not only struggling, but they were using these models to, rep, to showcase this like upper echelon type of a lifestyle that uh, folks that wear their fashion is a part of, right? And they weren't doing well in sales. Mm. So Amy Schumer came and, you know, she didn't fit the profile. She wasn't tall. She wasn't slender. She also came with a lot of pizzazz and other things that you typically, uh, not typically, but other things that that, were, that wasn't representing their brand at the time. Uh, but they found that even though she didn't look the part to them, she actually connected with everyday women. And as a result of that, they could, you know, they used her image and her influence to attract a bigger, a larger clientele, right? And, you know, when I think about diversity, I always think about that That's movie. It. You know, That's I always it. think about what, that movie. You know, what, that is an example of what happens to the black and brown community mm-hmm. all the time, is that we don't look like the people that they want to show on screen, but our substance and our culture right. is exactly the thing that they want to sell and commodify. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly what happens in the reverse, right? Is that usually the package that it's delivered in isn't the package that you would expect it to come in. Right, right. Yeah, and let's talk about you, for example, yeah. right? Um, you didn't necessarily uh, was born with a silver uh, spoon in your mouth. Far from it. Right? You were born in the BX, Facts. right? You know, how do you see your background mm. uh, being a diverse talent or a diverse asset the company that you're yeah I, I would actually go back and say that I'm I actually start looking inside to make sense of what's happening outside mm. like that's just my default it's okay. like I always go back in 
maybe that's why you, I think you've made reference to this that like Jason goes into these caves and leave him alone. He'll emerge at some point because he does deep work, and that, right. that's very true. But right. yeah, I do believe that I am as non-traditional as it comes for this company. You know, again, these guys are tried and true advertising agency bringing someone like me who's non-traditional in, in everything from the way he dresses to how he speaks, the, his background and all his interests. So, yeah, I'm very much that candidate of diversity. And I think, you know, I, for a long time in my career, I was, and I'm sure we all have, right? We, we would cover a lot of our identity because we thought we needed to be a certain way or a certain thing, whether you as an attorney coming up in the game, whether it's me in finance, um, and so I'm now at a point where I'm so comfortable in my skin, man, that mm. I show up to work in jeans, Chelsea boots, and a T-shirt that says Black Power Kitchen, food is a weapon in the back. There we go. You know what I mean? And and I'm I'm just as articulate, I'm just as sharp, I'm just as on it, on my job as the next person. And I think to me that's the most freeing, most empowering feeling in the world, bro. Mm. So, you know, it took a while to get there. It took a while in me doing the work, and as you are as well, doing the work to get so good at what you do and who you are that it's undeniable. Right. That it doesn't matter that you're wearing a tie-dye t-shirt. Right, you can right. still defend the shit out of somebody, right? right? Like right. in a courtroom. You can still litigate the shit out of a, court, a case. So I think that just, that doesn't come overnight. It comes with, with work. And I think that comes also with us celebrating our uniqueness and, and our diversity, as it were. Right. Um, and bringing that to the table and leading with that as opposed to picking and choosing what we, what we want to use and what we want to lead with. Right. And I think it's important that you highlight the work that you have to do before you even get there. 100%. You know, because you have to be confident in what you can bring. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not about looking different. It's about bringing something of value that is different, yeah. right? Absolutely. So, the you know, substance. Right, right, right. So in terms of diversity, again, um, it may not be your socioeconomic background, but what do you think is the diversity that you bring to BBDO at this time? My diversity of thought. You know, I think differently. Um, I think differently in the sense that my predecessors in the space, other chief, and, and look, I'm, I'm super aware and I honor the fact that a lot of the work that I'm doing now and that I will do in the future is sits on the shoulders of legends before me, right? So I don't purport to be this, you know, expert in any of it. But um, I think that the, what I bring to the table is the unique ability to have a creative mind with an analytical component to that creative mm. mind okay. where I can help them think about the creative work and why it makes sense and why we should talk to our community in this way and not say that and then reverse engineer all the way back to helping them understand why it's important from a revenue standpoint right. and why it's important to build a business around that and what's the marketing campaign and what you know what I'm saying yeah. and that just comes from my MBA from my you know my business background but it's just really rooted in coming from the Bronx, man. You know what I mean? And you know what it is in Harlem. Like, you used to walk down Harlem with a suit and still talk to the to the dudes on the corner. Right. Right? And then on the Saturday, you'll still you'll be dressed like the dudes on the corner, but you can talk to someone in the boardroom. Right. Like, that versatility is what right. you bring to the table. Right. Same thing with me. And so I think that is beyond anything that we learned in college, beyond anything that we've learned in any books that we've read, that that flexibility that being able to be a chameleon and draw from those experiences is the most valuable thing that I think we offer these companies. Man, I, I totally agree. And um, 
I've been trying to explain that to my Dominican elders. When they look at me with long hair, with tattoos, they're like, pero tu eres abogado. And I was like, no, it's different. Like, you, you know, I know your generation didn't witness what diversity looked like, with what uniqueness looked like, you know. Um, you have this prototype of who uh, a person that is successful is supposed to look like. So, you know, I appreciate you doing that work. Um, but since this is a safe space and uh, you come to us as a corporate insider, <laughs> Um, we know who gets told or what gets told in public, which is we want to improve, we want to increase diversity, it's good for the company, you know, we want to serve our, cons our consumers, they're also pretty diverse. Um, but behind closed doors, what are the real motivations for diversity? It's, it's money. It's money. It's always it's money. money. Right. It's money. In the I mean, I'm not surprised, but... It's corporate. America, I wanted you to shock me, and it's right, and you know, not that we, because we can turn this podcast on its head if we start talking about dismantling capitalism, right? right, right. That's, I mean, we can, right, right. We <laughs> How live, much time you got? We live in a, in a capitalistic society, and so it it all, it all is fundamentally about money in some right. way, shape, or form. Right. Um, and I think internally, while there is sentiment, you know, the sentiment I can't say that is not genuine to to want to really genuinely diversify the company and have it reflect the world that we live in. The, the sentiment is genuine. Here is, and I'm going to let you in into some thinking that I've been kind of mulling over over the last couple of weeks is what my unique contribution, what I hope to be my unique contribution to this space as a new chief diversity officer right. is, while I said earlier that there have been reports that talk about the why diversity is good for business, there aren't any actual connection points between those of us that practice diversity into bringing in that new business. Mm. So for me, I want to start to focus on how, as a diversity person, I can treat this work as a product okay. or as an offering to brands. So instead of them, instead of me going to a brand and, or, or just to the public and saying, I want to hire more black people, I want to say, we're doing this great diversity work and you should hire us, you should bring us on board to help, help bring you that thinking mm. so that you sell more product. Right. And if that happens, then I'm bringing in more money to the company. Right. And if I'm bringing in more money to the company, then I'm just as important as a CMO and a CFO, mm. right? And I think that, to me, is the, is where it needs to go. Okay. And that's what I think my unique contribution will be, hopefully. It's interesting that uh, we talk about talent and we talk about uh, recruiting talent uh, that exists within communities of color, right? Um, a strong diversity and inclusion strategy helps sure organization find that talent bring them over keep them and keep them, them and keep them that's very important but speaking of the top talented people of color w.e.b dubois mm. you know is it dubois or dubois you know i mean i've heard I, i've heard I my professor Bois, uh, you know like i've heard a professor uh say dubois yeah. but dubois is french for dubois <laughs> and i think it just sounds cooler right. <laughs> but um he used the term talented tenth mm. Uh, to describe the life, the likelihood of one in ten black men uh, becoming leaders of the race in the world, right? And um, and he determined that based on their education, or how much of a direct connection they had uh, towards social change. Not doing like industrial education such as like day laboring. Or, yeah, like a vocation. Like a vocation. He really spoke about education when we talk about recruiting top talent, you know, I think about that top 10%, and um, I think about how the majority, they don't have to 
Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't have to be a part of the top 10%. Um, but, but, but yet we have to be, there's a pressure for us to be a part of that top 10% of minority to be competitive mm -hmm. uh, versus whatever top percentage of the majority. Mm -hmm. My question is, and I just want to be clear with this, my question is when we speak of you know, diversity and inclusion, uh, is it really about rewarding... First of all, do you agree? Do you subscribe to that notion, that top ten percent? Like there's there's a there's a, a group of cream of the crop. Cream of the crop. Do you you know you obviously based on the work that you do and based on the wide range of way you determine value, I would I would think that you don't subscribe to that. No, I don't. I don't. I mean, that's just a hierarchical approach to life that I just don't want to subscribe to. Right, right. You know, I and think I know that, you don't. Yeah, I just think that there's value. People have value that is, that's expressed in different ways. Right. Right, you talked about earlier, you know, do we really need college degrees to work at Google's nowadays, right? right. Or the average that we don't. And that's because we're learning to value different things. You know, for, for us in the creative industries, we, there's no PhD in creativity and culture, per se, right? Um, if you're creative, you're just creative. Right. If you have that sensibility, you're just good, right? Like, there's ways you can sharpen those skills, but there's no, you know, you, you can go to school and get a creativity degree. I'm mm -hmm. sure you can, mm -hmm. but it's not, it, it's a gift. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, when, when you start looking at it that way um, and you start valuing people's gifts and talents, natural talents, mm -hmm. and then start to adjust um, around how do you create an environment for that talent to grow and to blossom and to nurture, then you're talking about a different thing, mm -hmm. right? But that's not what you and I are used to, right? We're used to having to conform ourselves and perhaps even shut away our talents into a, a closet for the sake of like, yo, I got to become an attorney. Mm -hmm. And I can't show up with tattoos. I can't show up with, you know, wanting to write, you know, this beautiful prose, you know, that lives in my heart, right? Mm -hmm. But like, that, but that's changing, right? Where like now you can do both and you can do all things. And I think it's just a fundamental shift in the ways that we're looking at the world and realizing that college, a college degree, as it were, while it's important, and I'll always encourage anybody, if you have an opportunity to go to college, go, not just for the book smarts, but for the life opportunities, right? You and I met in college, right? Like, so those opportunities, um, so yeah, go to college, but don't discount the amount of learning and the amount of growth that you can exhibit and experience outside of that, mm -hmm. um, through self-edification, through traveling, through just keeping an open mind. And I think that, to me, is the real education. Mm -hmm. So if you can couple that with a great college degree from a great program and all the things that you mentioned, mm -hmm. then great. Then mm -hmm. you're winning. But I don't think you necessarily need that anymore. Right. And for a man in your position, I really appreciate you saying that. Damn, them accounting is hard. <laughs> um, I really appreciate you saying that only because just the other day, and the reason I bring this up is because I was on, it wasn't a panel, it was more like a, a virtual forum. Mm -hmm. And um, I was... Uh, talking to uh, law students. Actually, I was talking to undergraduates that wanted to go to law school. And there was a program uh, that uh, wanted to, you know, give them access to attorneys of color mm -hmm. so that they can, you know, ask them questions about how it is to be an attorney of color, especially in mostly white spaces. And on this forum, there were many attorneys that were doing big corporate law. And um, there was a lot of conversations centered around the fact that um, because they had gone to a specific university or a specific law school, um, that right now uh, it is the best time to um, strike when the iron's hot. 
uh, only because uh, they're looking for black talent and they consider themselves, you know, the cream of the crop. So kind of like taking advantage of everything that has been going on in the media, you know, due to, uh, you know, just injustices, criminal... People are scrambling for us. People are scrambling for us, right? But for some reason, that sentiment didn't feel right to me uh, because the value was narrowed down by schooling, by classical education, something, again, that Mr. Du Bois or Du Bois, mm-hmm. right, uh, mentioned. Uh, but that doesn't take into account, you know, all the value that exists out there outside yeah. of education, outside of status and profession. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes, uh, to go a step further, I think it starts to also further commoditize, you know, the individual mm-hmm. and, and the community right. that that individual comes from. So, you know, it's, it's just really casting a wider net about what we assign value to in right. society. Like, education is important, but there's a thousand ways to be educated. Uh, success is important, but there's a lot of definitions of what success is. And so I think for us, what we, what I think you and I and our generation are starting to do is redefine all of that. Right. You know, whereas Du Bois and Du Bois had, had a vision about what that was, that vision was developed during a specific time where right. education was the only way. Right. You know what I'm saying? M- meaning education in the traditional sense, right? right. Like that was the way out because you weren't going to be able to start a business. You didn't have the capital to do it. You weren't right. going to be able to go to a bank and get it. So you had to, if, to a certain extent, and if, and if you had to, just educate yourself like many of these, you know, iconic figures did. So from that standpoint, um, that was then, this is now. And I think we're now redefining what we mean by education and by, um, and what we, and the value that we assign to that. Right, right. We're just looking at it differently. Because, you know, like the image that many of us have outside of, you know, those conversations that you're having um, within corporate spaces is that, okay, um, for example, Barack Obama, you know, black men can be president, but, uh, you know, he has to be a Harvard grad. But he had to be perfect. He had to be perfect, Mm -hmm. you know, so I just hope that uh, these diversity and um, inclusion initiatives or or, or movements that are occurring within these corporate spaces um, is not just about rewarding exceptionalism Mm -hmm. within the black community, but also rewarding exceptionalism uh, among, for exceptionalism among for, for everyone but let me know. say this though like the flip side of that is you know take the opportunity however it comes fam right you know what I'm saying like if if the white world is opening its doors and opening its pocketbooks for us because they feel a certain level of guilt mm. for what's happening mm. then take advantage of that right and then turn that into whatever you want it to be uh, look we're, we're in no position to say no to any opportunity right I mean we in certain instances, yes, but like I think we we have to take advantage of the opportunities, and then what we do, what we do with that opportunity, then is up to us. Right, 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 right. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right. I just I want to make sure that when we take these opportunities, uh, we're not just uh, feeling great about being the only person of color in that space. Like it's really about uh, bringing people in along. It's not only about your individual mm-hmm. benefit. Like yes. I was able to take advantage of this moment because not only am I talented, but they needed me and they needed a face, you know, and it has to be. And I know you're about that work yeah. as well. It has to be way deeper than that. It has to be. And, you know, and I, I just hope that many others that are in your position are also taking that stance. Yeah. And, and look, I, I while I said earlier that I'm the first chief diversity officer, I'm also the only person of color in my management team mm. globally. And that comes with a responsibility 
And I can tell you there are a lot of us that are saying, no, if I'm going to be the only one, if I'm going to be the first X, Y, and Z, I don't want that job or mm. I don't want that opportunity. So a lot of us are saying no to those and just creating our own lanes. Mm. Um, but even that, like even if you are the only one, I think to your point, it's important that we put our toe in the door and crack that shit open and then just wait motherfuckers in. Like, yo, come in, right? That's right. our responsibility to do. Right. Um, some of us do it, some of us don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so hopefully hopefully that changes, yeah. and, and hopefully we do reach back, you yeah. know. Um, but a few weeks ago, you mentioned something at dinner that spoke to me. And for as long as I've known you, uh, you've always spoken to me in ways uh, that I connect with on a deeper level. Uh, but at this dinner, you spoke about your transition into this new position, and you said something that was very empowering. You said that at this point in your life, uh, that your work has to align with your spiritual practice. Something to that effect. Please let me know if I... No, you, you captured the spirit of okay. it. 100%. I think it's... Your question was... You asked me how I was doing. I think that's what it was. And I was just like, yo, I feel I feel great. And you know, as we went through and had that conversation, I think I made the point that um, what I'm starting to notice and realize and, and really just value is that my work, however you define work, but my work, whether it's this job, whether it's the work you know, through the lives of men, if it's not aligned and, or aligning with my spiritual growth and mm. evolution, then I don't want it. Mm. And and I think that is, and we, we will all get there. If we're on a particular journey, those of us who are on a journey of self-recovery and discovery and growth and evolution, we'll get to a point where we're going to have to reckon with whether or not our day-to-day jobs, our nine-to-fives, are in line, are in congruence with who we want to be. Mm-hmm. And if that's not the case, you will come to a point of like having to make a decision. And for me, taking this job, I was having a great time running my own business, brother. I was I was free in all senses of the word. It wasn't easy, but I was free. And when this opportunity came, came uh, available, it was just like, man, that means going back to corporate, spending nine to five, you know, being beholden to an organization and being a number at the end of the day, regardless of seniority. I I struggled with that for 30 seconds because the role is, if there was ever a job to take for me, Mm -hmm. this is it. It marries the creative sensibilities with the impact work that I'm doing, that that I care about. It allows me to show up in the way that I, my best self, right? Um, and then it also aligns with this notion of wanting to leave the world in a little bit better place for the next generation, mm-hmm. right? And that's the work that I'm doing on a daily basis. It's creating pathways to success for people that look like you and me. That's in line with my spiritual growth right. and where with where I want to be. Um, living in, in a, a state of constant creation and evolution, that's in line with where I want to be. Mm-hmm. So that's what I meant by that comment is, you know, wanting to make sure that it aligns with me as closely as it can. Right, it's not going to always be one to one, but it, if I can align my work with my spiritual evolution, my spiritual evolution is the most important thing, mm. and that is will always be number one. But if I can align my work with that to a certain extent, then man, the world is open for me. Right, right, yeah. And you know when that when you said that, I felt I felt so connected to that statement because um, I was feeling the same way. You know, I wanted to move in a way where it wasn't about 
the money. And not to say that it was always about the money. Mm-hmm. You know, I got into law because I really, truly wanted to do law. I really wanted to be an advocate. And, and by the way, do. by the way, we don't come from money. So it's okay if there was a time where it was about the money. Right. It's okay, bro. Thank you for reminding me. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, you're right. So, and also coming from an immigrant family, the pressures of having to be the first one to graduate, uh, the pressures of, of having to, you know, provide, uh, you know, being, the, you know, the son, mm-hmm. um, you know, so yeah, there was a lot. And I'm sure that dictated what I found important and that dictated how I moved. But now, and, and thankfully, because I've done the work and I've, I would like to say I've paid my dues in my profession, um, and I'm continuing to pay my dues, uh, but at least right now I'm in a position where I can say, okay, I can adjust my schedule in a way that aligns with how I want to live my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, you know, not go to work on Fridays, or I can say, you know what, um, I will work Sunday afternoons, or um, I'm not going to take that case because that case doesn't, like, I know I'm not going to feel passionate mm-hmm. about that case. And um, I think know, that right there is the most important thing, right? right? Because, because what you're doing, and I think this is what I would encourage anybody that's listening, is whether your work aligns clearly with your personal growth is less important than you being able to find those nuggets in your work that do align. Right. That's the most important thing. Right. Because we don't all have, we're, and I'm speaking from a place of privilege, I get it, right? I was able to find my dream job. A lot of us don't have that. Mm-hmm. But if you can take the time to look at your humdrum nine to five job that you hate and find maybe two or three nuggets in there that really feed you, you can make something out of that. Right. And I think that's what you're, that's what you're yeah. referring to. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. But also, um, the only way I could have done that in my situation, um, in which I'm still continuing to learn, how to improve is uh, not put too much on my plate. Mm. Not put too much on my plate. And uh, it's okay to say, I don't have the time for that. Mm. And it wasn't about money. It was sometimes you just wanted to do right by the client. Uh, But there's only 24 hours in a day. And when you're fatigued, you're not your best self. And when you're not your best self, that can trickle into your work. That can trickle, you know, into, that can start to affect your personal life. You know, I wanted to be very conscientious of that. that's the path that I want to start taking as I move forward. It's um, purpose. And, and it's really about carving out space to be creative, mm-hmm. you know, to do the podcast, you know, to continue reading, mm-hmm. uh, do things that, that I've always enjoyed but never had the time to do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, less is more, and, um, and if that can afford you opportunities to uh, learn more about yourself through experiences, then I'm all for it, you know, again. So that's... that's uh, pretty consistent with, with with what you're saying, but you weren't always in a position, right? Going back to your job mm-hmm. that you have now, you weren't always in that position. There was at one point where you were an employee and you worked, well, you're an employee now, but mm-hmm. you know, at, at some point you were an employee, uh, but you were working as an employee in finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that you went to school for, mm-hmm. correct? Okay. And you also went to very good, expensive school uh, to get that master's in business. What was your experience with diversity or the lack of diversity in these companies that you used to work for? Mm. You know, because I kind of want to see if that shaped you at that time moving forward. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, You know, it was, yes, it was a lack of diversity and lack of representation, right? 
right? Like I didn't see many examples of uh, of where I could be as a black man, as a, as a Latino man, as an Afro-Latino man, didn't see many examples of people that looked like me at right. the most senior levels. And mm -hmm. so if you can't see it, you can't be it. Right. Um, so that was, obviously, that was one of the biggest things. I think that what, what I struggled with the most, man, was that I felt, right, whether this was true or not, I felt that I had to dim my light in mm -hmm. order to survive. When I decided to finally leave my job, it was in large part because I felt like the world, uh, the, the person who I was becoming or wanted to become in my personal life wasn't congruent with the person that I needed to become in my mm -hmm. career to continue to be successful. Mm -hmm. I needed to morph into this cutthroat, single-minded person just to make sure that I climbed that corporate ladder. That's not who I wanted to be. So I decided to, you know, um, disrupt that and then just leave. But, um, but yeah, I think it was just a lack of representation, uh, being able to see a pathway for me, and then also just struggling with having to constantly dim my light. And so to, you just mentioned that creativity is important, being able for you to, to, to create. The way that I expressed my creativity was in the way that I dressed. Mm. You know, I would wear, I mean, you know, yeah. I, I would wear certain things in the ways that I thought were cool and colorful and different. And that's how my creativity came out in an environment where creativity was suppressed mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And that's that was my, my way of rebuttaling and, and rebelling. Right, right. But... Um, through that, you were able to step outside of New York and use that opportunity to just experience a different life, and, and you did that in Switzerland, yeah. right? How was that experience, man? Because not you know, there's not too many of us that can say that uh, we worked internationally, yeah. and we worked internationally for what a year, two years, two years. Wow. Um, <laughs> And you came to visit me, and so you know what that life was like. Man. Yeah, and I was able to do it with a law school budget, you know. <laughs> when there's a will, there's a way. Facts. When, if, you know, knowing what I know now about everything that transpired in my life since then, um, I would have probably still been in Switzerland. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. All right, so you say that because I know a lot, yeah. Um, but yeah. And yeah. I want you to say, you know, I want you to, I, I want to know because you seem really happy in Switzerland. Oh, so man, I, want I, was, you, I was really happy. Yeah. I was really happy. And you had a really nice apartment man, out there. You were I doing was, all right, I man. Really I mean, you still doing all right, but. <laughs> I, I was happy because I felt free. I right, felt right, right. unconstrained by the American mentality mm -hmm. around, like you said, capitalism and chasing yeah, money. Yeah, bro, bro, bro. I remember when I went to first visit you. The first thing I noticed, how slow you were eating. Bro. I'm like, why is this guy taking his time with everything? Yeah. Walk. <laughs> like, people like you get, get bum-rushed in New York City. Funny, when I would come back home to visit, I would have to tell me, yeah, like, speed up because you're going to get hit by a car. Dude. So it's just that dynamic. But yeah, 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 yeah. I was happy, man. I was happy because, you know, living anywhere outside of the U.S., mentalities are different. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I was there at a time where it was just the, the cusp, the ending of the George Bush presidency, mm -hmm. the beginning of, in fact, I was there during uh, the election of Obama. So when I first got there, it was almost like a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people feel right right now, and we're, we're ashamed to say that we're American. As mm -hmm. um, soon as Barack won, it was like, yes, I'm American, yeah. you know? Um, and then that just carried me to, through the, the rest of the time that I was there. But it was just a combination of Switzerland itself is a beautiful place to be right. aesthetically. It's a beautiful country, beautiful people. Geneva in particular, which is where I was, is the international capital of the UN. So it's a very transitory sure. place. You're going to, I mean, I have, as you know, we both do, have friends all over the world. 
right. where we can just say, just from that experience, be able to say, yeah, I'm going to go to Sri Lanka and there's someone there that we know that we can connect with. So right. from that standpoint, that allowed me to feel like a citizen of the world. Yeah. And, you know, I think the one thing that you also know about me is that I don't like to be constrained. Mm -hmm. um, freedom is a very important part of my personal philosophy. And I felt as free then as I've ever felt. Mm -hmm. and, and, and living in that freedom was incredible. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was just a, a great time in my life. I remember how, how diverse your friends were. Oh, man. I remember that you took more time. You've always been very introspective, mm. but I felt that you actually had the time. I had no choice. I was by myself. Out right. There. <laughs> you, were, you were by yourself out yeah. there, but, but I felt that you were, I saw your evolution as a person, you know, and I've always, and that's something that I've always admired of you, Thank you bro. since day one. And that's what, you know, I think truly defines our friendship, which is a, a commitment to holding each other accountable and providing space uh, for each other to be vulnerable so that we can learn lessons Anchoring and we can grow and we can grow and we can grow you know i don't think i've had any other person that i've that that i've engaged with about conversations in a, in a very vulnerable way the way that i have with you you know you're my god man and i love you you love know you more, i miss you it's been what like about a month and a half that i haven't seen you man <laughs> right. back in the day we used to see each other all the time right, right. but um yeah and so that's why you're out there in switzerland and you're out there by yourself mm. not only are you out there with no support system, no family members, right? You're also in a different time zone. Different so culture. Different culture. Yeah. So you being by yourself out there, having the pressures to learn a language, learn a culture, what did you learn about yourself during that time? That there's nothing I can do, right? I, I learned that I have... A, a power. I think that time introduced me to the power that I think I've always known I've, I've had inside mm -hmm. me, but never had an opportunity to exercise. Mm -hmm. And so being alone, being you know, away, being um, having the time to think and explore and express and meeting different people with different backgrounds and perspectives, just it was a mirror to me more broadly, right? It showed me that... Um, I belong, mm -hmm. right, and that I'm of value in right. the world, and that, more importantly, whatever it is that I want to do, um, I, I, you know, I often say, and you know this, that your thoughts become the house that you live in, mm -hmm. and um, that's when I start to really put that into practice. It's like, okay, everything that I want is in front of me if I if I really just think think through that and commit to creating those goals, and that's what that taught me, and it also taught me a lot about my demons, man, and my, my dark moments. Um, I read a book during the time, and I forget the title right now, but maybe I'll send it to you so we can put it in the comments. Okay. Um, it was a quick 80 pages, but it was about proactively going into your shadow self and doing mm -hmm. that shadow work and mm -hmm. understanding, you know, who you are and why that shadow simultaneously feeds your light and those things that you put out into the world that people love about you. Mm -hmm. And that was such a profound um, experience for me because it... it, it my growth in those two years, man, I, I would say putting it parallel to had I stayed here were the equivalent of maybe 10 years of growth in those wow. two years in terms of just the time, the experiences, the, the, the ups and downs that I experienced while I was there. So, yeah, man. And, and aside from that, man, just being able to pick up and go and live somewhere else for a while, I would recommend that to anybody. Right. If you have an opportunity to live outside of the U.S. for a while, do it. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, yeah, do it. Um, 
obviously it helps when you have a really good job, right? But, and you can support yourself and you can actually live in a decent neighborhood, you know? Um, but like you mentioned before, Geneva is a global city. It's a, it's an international city. Uh, you know, it, there's so much diplomacy with international organizations. Um, one would imagine that there's a respect for diversity out there. Was that your experience, that people appreciated diversity? I would say say not just appreciated, but celebrated it. Really? And embraced it. It was just like, we would have dinner, and it would be someone from Rwanda at the table, someone from Spain, someone from Germany. Uh, And I think that was just beautiful, because that was, you know, and and you know how people say, oh, I'm colorblind. I don't Mm -hmm. see color. Right. Uh, I think if there was ever an expression of that, it was the many dinner tables that I sat at in Geneva, mm-hmm. where it was literally an embracing and a celebration of that difference that I experienced for the first time in my life outside of the U.S. that was genuine, mm-hmm. that was just really just pure love. Um, I've never seen that before. I haven't seen it since. I hadn't seen it before, and I haven't seen it since, unfortunately. Right. I mean, I I've tried to recreate it. I think we, in our circle of friends, try to create that in terms of just the ways that our network has expanded and evolved. Right. But I think to, to experience that on a consistent basis is hard. Right. Well, you know, obviously we live in a different country, yeah. and there's a, a certain culture based on uh, the finance laws. I consider uh, Geneva, I consider Switzerland to be very neutral mm-hmm. when it comes to politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, for politics, whatever interest yeah, you know, there is, but, um, and I'm sure that seeps down to the way people treat each other. Yeah. So here's the here's the funny part. I just said what I said. I said everything about being diverse, but I don't think I was ever invited to an actual Swiss person's home. Mm. So that's the thing, right? While it was very uh, diverse and very embracing of the diversity, it it was embraced by the people that were not from there, Mm. right? That were just passing by, like myself and others. But uh, the Swiss are very, you know, straight, set in their ways, and you know. could it be that they're more reserved? or I would say reserved. Right. Europeans, yeah. I think, in general, with the exception of Spain, Portugal. I would say Swiss, the Swiss are Italian unique. Italian like, tend to be very right. yeah. social. But, uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah, now, now we're just speculating. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, all right, so when you talk, so now you come to New York, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're talking to companies and, and, and you talk to them about your Geneva experience. What is it, what is it that you tell them? Because I want to know how an experience like that helps you become an asset to a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I've never had that experience. So, but on a business level, you know, how did your experience in Geneva help you? Yeah, I mean, think about the time that I was there. I was there, I left March of 08, um, April of 08. No, March of 08, right in that time is when Lehman went bankrupt, right? Mm-hmm. And the beginnings of this financial crisis started. Right. So I left at the at the very beginning of the financial crisis, was in Geneva while the whole Swiss banking secrecy issues with UBS were, were occurring, and the political landscape in the U.S. was changing from Bush to Obama. So all of that influenced my experience there, you know, my, my work, et cetera. So what I tell companies or what I would, would tell companies is that I was able to cut my teeth in an environment that was just constantly changing. Right. Um, and I was able to see the world financial crisis from a different vantage point. I wasn't in the U.S., but I was in Europe. And it, it had its uh, implications and ripple effects there. So that's a value to people, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to have the world view, mm-hmm. um, to be able to understand, to have uh, and develop a cultural dexterity, mm-hmm. to be able to understand 
how people move and what motivates different people and cultures and traditions and values and backgrounds and bringing that to the table in order to do a job I think is incredibly valuable mm-hmm. to people so you know there were things that I learned in the job and then there were things that I learned outside the job that I was able to to parlay into um, in interviews that that really conveyed value you came back yeah. you know now now you got someone that was out there in Geneva doing his thing uh, you know I think it's time for you to show me the money mm-hmm. so you came back and you uh, pursued your career in finance you actually you know uh, pursued it by also getting your master's at NYU mm-hmm. Um, and you were doing really well. And then, then what happened? I just blew shit up. <laughs> I was like, what the... Yeah, yeah I, I think something happened to me, like I said, in Geneva, where I realized that there was a power in me and there was this freedom that... Freedom is a very important part of my life. And I'm, and I'm saying freedom not in the sense that, like, I don't want to be attached to things or committed to things, but right. freedom in expression, mm-hmm. freedom in being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learned that that was sparked while I was there. So when I came back, yeah, I continued my career in finance, and I just, I something woke in me that just would not turn off. And so, um, for me, it was just like, it was only a matter of time, now that I look back, that I was going to be in finance. Because right. I was making great money, I was living the life, but it wasn't fulfilling. And mm-hmm. so I just got to a point where, again, those two worlds of my life were not converging. And I was just like, yo, if there was ever a time, so let me backtrack, because I think this is an important story. Uh, and it and it's a full circle moment for me actually with this BBDO and I'll I'll connect it, but you know how sometimes you say you make a decision, or if you don't make the decision, the universe will make it for you. Right. Um, I had been wrestling with the idea of just like I need to leave my job. There's something else. There's something more. There's something mm-hmm. more. I just didn't know what it was, and I didn't have the courage to leave my job because right. I have a daughter, I have business school debt, and all that. Um, it got to the point where I got laid off at UBS. Uh, six months before I finished my MBA. And my goal with the MBA was to transition into another part of finance. So when I did that, it was like the universe saying, yo, well, you've been wanting to do, make this decision and you, you're not taking any action, so here it is. And it just gave me the boot and it made it for me. Mm. That started this process of just like, okay, now i got to really focus in and, and figure out what, what I want to do. If I'm really wanting to do this work, um, i got to do it. And so that's when I started to create the, the lives of men. Um, and you know, again, it was just one of those things where I, I'm grateful that it happened. And now, you know, bringing it full circle, the, my job at BBDO is in the same building as that UBS job. And so the first day that I reported to my job at BBDO was the first day that I'd been in that office since the day that I was laid off at UBS. Mm. Right. So think about, see the the universe coming full circle. It's like, I got better for you. Like just let go. Right. And, and trust and trust yourself, trust me, trust the most high, whatever. And, you know, I got you. Right. And, and look at it, it's bearing out now. Yeah. And talk to us about the lives of men, yeah. uh, because it was um, it is, yeah. you know, an amazing organization. Yeah. And um, the mission of that organization is who you are. For, for those that don't know you, mm. you know, when it comes to uh, self-improvement, when it comes to recognizing whether we have issues, uh, you know, with ourselves, with our families, discussing the importance of mental health. Also, the, the importance, the need for us to hold each other accountable so that we can be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was something that you've always talked about. Mm-hmm. You've always talked about. And um, for you to now create an organization centered around that, mm-hmm. uh, to me, was beautiful. Thank you. And it was also 
inspiring to say the least for a shadow artist like myself and for others that are out there that uh, you and I both know who have amazing talent, mm-hmm. uh, but it's extremely hard for them to live outside of uh, the stable environment of a nine to five, right? Um, and the fact that you took that jump, uh, believe me, you motivated more people than you know mm-hmm. and more uh, close friends mm-hmm. like myself mm-hmm. than you know. So you took the jump and your focus was to do what exactly first? Because you tackled on a lot and you tackled on a lot at a time where shit was coming to head. It was like you were feeling the pulse. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you started the Lives of Men before the Me Too movement. Yeah. Right? You were talking about toxic masculine, masculinity before that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the inspiration behind it is twofold, right? And you've known me for, since I was 19 years old. Um, you know that I come from a single-parent home, oldest of five kids. Mm-hmm. Dad wasn't around. Very similar backgrounds. Right. I wanted to create something, first and foremost, that was a, a medicine and an antidote to, to that, to that experience. Um, you know, I've, I've grown and become who I am by making a lot of mistakes. So I wanted to create a platform, first and foremost, without really fully understanding what it could become, to address that as right. a resource. Okay. The second thing, and, and this is more of a function of responding to the climate that you mentioned, you know, we launched Lives of Men in February of 2017. Me Too went viral later that year, mm-hmm. in October um, of 2017 or so. And so it just, it, it, it was talk about perfect timing to talk about these conversations around what it means to be a man. And so what is it at its core? It really is just a platform that tries to encourage men, not teach men, but encourage this this uh, men to go deeper right. and to explore themselves. Uh, and in, to do that in order to show up their best selves in their personal and their professional lives. At its core, that's what it is. It's not about style. It's not necessarily about mental health. It's about trying to explore those ways in a way that's collaborative and and not like holier than now if you will right like mm-hmm. I don't have it all figured out so what's what's happened since then though is that this conversation around masculinity or new masculinity has met the world where the world has met that conversation where it's at because as you mentioned me too happened and then all of a sudden a couple athletes start to talk about mental health and then all of a sudden culture and identity and Afro-Latinidad became a topic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then so those are all things that, I'm, uh, that I embody. And so I think to your point, the organization embodies me because I injected it with all who, that I am. Um, so right now, and then so it evolved further from that to now becoming more of a, what I'll call an impact agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, an impact agency that works with brands and companies and, and still does community work in the New York City schools, but all with this idea of how do we use this platform that we have as men with privilege to advocate for ourselves and advocate for underrepresented groups? That is, is that's what it is at its core. Um, and and the conversation around masculinity, I mean, uh, mental health is all tangential to that. Okay. And what has been the response from men? That it's been great. You know, I think, and and that's the thing. You know, I'm I'm just one, or my organization is one of the vanguard of of organizations that are leading this work. Right, Mastermind Connect. You right. know, we've got. Uh, Black Men Smile, you have, I mean, so many organizations, uh, Black Men Thrive, that are, at the end of the day, at its core, have the same goal, and that is to empower men of color, particularly Black and Latino men, but we just have different ways of getting there, right. and and I think it's just, for me, 
I'm just proud to be in that conversation so that in 20 years time and 30 years time, when people look back at these last four or five years, they're like, wow, Jason was one of the guys that was leading that conversation. Oh, and by the way, he did his best, as imperfect as he is, to embody those values and those principles. Right. You know, and he left the world in a little bit better place than he found it. Salute to that, man, because your events were attended uh, by many, both men and women, right? So how has been the response from the women? And I feel like the women also support you very much, or the organization, I have to mm -hmm. say. Women want to know what's on our minds. You know, while... I'm speaking from a man's perspective and, and the, the advice or I guess the, the, the stories that I'm that I'm trying to tell are from that perspective. Um, I also realize that women want to know what's on our minds in order for us to really it's about creating stronger relationships, man, and stronger communities between. And I'm speaking specifically around people that identify themselves as straight cisgender women. Right. right. And cisgender straight men. Obviously, there's a, a range in between that. Um, but, you know, from that standpoint, I think when it comes to communication and relationships and love, as it were, uh, I think women want to know what's on our minds. And, and I think we also want to decode them to a certain extent. And I think that's what this work is about. It's not just for men. Right. It's about women and encouraging women to think about the ways that patriarchy has affected them as well. And how we're both complicit in some of the issues that we have in our communities and relationships. And again, not to assign uh, responsibility to them for our work, but it's about um, encouraging us to do the work that we need to do. Right. Showing up to the table halfway full and then having and inviting them to the table and then we figure out what our work is to do together. Right, right. Yeah, the burden is always on us to, to do the work. Yeah. Um, how has patriarchy, and I know you, you're probably tired of talking about this, but again, I like having this conversation because sometimes... Uh, insights come to you, uh, different insights come to you depending on, you know, where you're at in life. And every day I'm learning how patriarchy has affected me and has uh, shifted uh, the way uh, I think about the world, right? Um, so with you and your personal experience of patriarchy, what do you think, what are the noticeable things that, that you can touch on and say, you know what, yeah, that was not the right way to uh, to, to view that from what have you developed from yeah I mean it, you know just actions you know things that um, we we're taught that when we're as men when we're feeling a certain way when we, specifically when we're hurt and when we feel abandoned and we feel unheard or unseen uh, we tend to lash out mm -hmm. and we tend to do things like go out and sleep around and just be with women and do you know do all sorts of gaslight do all the things right and I'm not I'm not I'm as guilty as that as the next brother um, I think that is one marker. The other marker that I would say that um, clearly signals to me how patriarchy has affected me is quite the opposite, actually. It's me doing everything that I can to show up unlike the traditional man, mm -hmm. in the sense that I cook and clean for myself. Right. Um, I'm very vulnerable, right? I'm soft, you know, and I'm tender in that way. Um, and so trying to live my life in a way that debunks those myths of, of what patriarchy tells me that I'm supposed to be. So that's, it affected me that way, but I've just turned it on its head. Yeah, it's funny. When you talk to me about that you're soft, uh, you know, the other day I was listening to The, the Quiet Storm, uh, 105.1, and I was like, that's that's Jason right there. You know, and I was referring to Lenny Green. And, you know, and... Uh, that is very much me. Yeah, you know, it's just that, just you have a very calm way of expressing yourself, mm -hmm. and um, that invites introspection and invites... Uh, brothers or, you know, not even, not only men, but, uh, you know, those that you have con intimate conversations with to really, like, 
reflect, reflect on themselves. Um, and, and that's why I think uh, you've received such a positive response. Because not only are you doing the work, yeah. but you also, your language, the way you communicate, your tone, your body, your body language also makes it safe. Let me also say this, man, and I think I got to say this because and I think you'd appreciate it and it'll hit home. While you say that, and I appreciate that, there is a group of people whose love I yearn for that I don't feel like I always get. Mm. And that is our closer circle of friends. Mm. And, I, and I know part of that is me, right? Part of that is me putting walls around myself, mm. fully understand it, I take responsibility for that. But part of it is also me wondering and being insecure about whether or not my growth separates me from where they may be, right? In terms of, is the fact that I'm always thinking about how to improve myself, is the fact that I'm always thinking in terms of spiritual, uh, in, in, in spiritual terms, uh, make me the outsider, right? Um, am I able to connect with them are they able to connect with me on that level and is there a certain friction there mm. that prevents us from getting closer i mean we've always been close right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. relationships change of course mm -hmm. but i do feel like over the last couple of years or few years um i've i've there's been a separation mm -hmm. right there's been a separation from from certain groups of folks that i love dearly and i will always love dearly mm -hmm. but i wonder where that comes from is it is it because they view me as, you know, I, like I told you, my level of growth has been exponential. You know, I read a book and I change in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's just what works for me. That's not to say that I'm any better or worse than anybody else. That's not how I view myself. But I do view myself as someone who's constantly evolving and growing. And I want that for the people that I love around me as well. And so I wonder how much of that is me needing to adjust my perspective and expectations of people. And how much of it is the people around me having to elevate themselves as well in different ways? Does that make sense? It makes sense. And I just want to say that I think people come to know uh, unconditional love or, or how to express, receive, give unconditional love um, in different times of their lives, right? And I think to understand that is to really be shooting at a moving target. Uh, you know, some of us we like to understand who this person is or what that person does or, you know, and when a person is unpredictable, it's like you can't put your finger on it, you know, and I think that comes from a very selfish place. Mm. But... It, in other words, you people want to feel comfortable in putting you in a box because they want, want to know. People want to feel comfortable in putting you in a box. And it's not because of they don't want the best for you. But a lot of it is reflective on what they hold to be rational, you know, what they hold to be safe. And, um, and it can be a combination of, you know, what is this person doing, you know, because you're a person that, and one of the reasons why I admire you is because you're a man of many personal revolutions, you know, you're consistently changing, you know, and, um, and I've always loved that about you. But to an individual that is focused more on being safe and, um, you know, is, is more fearful and not because they're on un, they're unloving. They're just fearful. You know, like, why would you leave your job? Right. Or uh, why would you want to start this? How does that make money? All of those things. 
are intrinsic, are in the DNA of many young men and women, especially immigrant young men and women, because we don't know anything else. We don't know. We don't have these freedoms of stepping outside of the box. How much pressures did we have growing up of like choosing a traditional route and sticking to that? You know, we placed those pressures, but a lot of those pressures came from the environments that we were raised in. Um, so when they see, or, you know, and I'm generalizing here, but when I can see how, you know, a friend of ours can see you taking that risk, one, and wanting to protect you from that, it's like, why is Jason doing it that? It could very well be that, yeah, 100%. But also, it could be reflective of, wow, Jason can do that. Maybe I can do what I want to do, what I'm passionate about, but I'm just afraid to do it. So Jason is forcing me to look in the mirror. Mm. So it's a combination of those two. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. You know? But, that, but isn't that our role, right? As, as one, as individuals, as human beings, is to inspire growth and evolution in the world that we live in, like leaving the world a better place, but also for the people that we say we love? Isn't it about, one, yes, loving them unconditionally, where they at, where they are, um, and being soft and patient and nurturing about their own journey, right? And not imposing your own journey and your own views on them. Right. But also challenging them to a, to a healthy extent, right? Like you've done for me and I've done for you, right? Like there's, you know, I also view that as part of love, right? Like love being my favorite word in the English language. Like love is also making sure that I light a fire under your ass and say, yo, you could do better. You could do more. Right. Uh, and love is also, Jason, take a step back, shut the fuck up because... This is your journey. This is not anyone else's right. journey. And you can't necessarily hold people accountable or hold people to the expectations that you may hold yourself. Right. Um, but I just think that at the end of the day, what it does, that tension um, doesn't leave a lot of room for love in its purest form. Mm-hmm. Because there's always a tension and there's always an expectation and there's always a challenge and there's always an ulterior motive or at least a perception of that. And, and what I'd like to get to in terms of my personal relationships and the people that I love is to be able to have an open dialogue about that and say, one, how can I help you, mm-hmm. right? How can I be of service to you? How can I help you be the fullest representation of who you are and who you are meant to be in this world, right? Because right? oftentimes we see light in other people before they see it in themselves. So my job as your friend, Chuck, is to be like, yo, how can I help you bring that light forward? The other part of it is, I should also be open to you you constructively criticizing me or offering me things that I may not necessarily be observing myself and being right. open to that, right? right? Because that that bidirectional that sharing is love in action. It's love love is a verb, right? Like that that action. Um, but I think you can't do that without a certain level of vulnerability and openness and communication. Right. And and that is bringing it full circle, right? Going back to the lives of men and the work that I did there and the work that I continue to do there. BBDO, it really is about humanness, right? right. Like activating humanness right. Um, with, through vulnerability, through love, through patience, through understanding and compassion. Like, that's what that is. Right. And if and if we're not living there, then it's not worth, it's not worth living, in my opinion. Right, right, yeah. But in order to get there, you have to, like, let go of these biases, these prejudices, these uh, fearful, uh, you know, ways of thinking, of looking at the world. And, you know, some people arrive there later than others. And I think you arrived there pretty, or should I say, you arrived in your awakening away from those things pretty 
pretty early. Um, and, um, you know, and I hope the same for, you know, the loved ones that we have in common, uh, for folks out there that are listening, you know, that, that don't have any connection to us. Uh, because I think we have to come to terms eventually at some point in your life with who we are and the choices that we've you made. Will, you will, that is the first thing that and we And when you sit saying. down and you say, I've spent the last 20, 30 years doing something that I didn't want to do. I really wanted to pick up a guitar, but I didn't because I was scared that I wasn't going to make it. That's you. That's you. Mm-hmm. But the question is, do you want to go through that? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to be around people that tell you it's okay to jump? Mm-hmm. It's okay to jump. At the end of the day, you still have us. We're your support system. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's the environment that I want to create, you know, and I've been trying to create that not only amongst my friends, but, uh, you know, amongst uh, folks that follow me, uh, you know, people that I talk to on panels, because uh, I think it's very important for us to be mavericks. There's not so many of us that are, that are open to being mavericks. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay to be different. It's okay to live your purpose. It's okay to take risks, right? It's okay if your parents don't agree. It's your life. Mm-hmm. If they love you, in which they will, mm-hmm. they'll learn to adjust with your way of living, you know, with the risk that you're taking. And especially for creatives like you, you know, and I've always known you to be a creative uh, or, uh, you know, shadow artists like me who have always been creative but at a distance. Mm-hmm. What brought me out of that shadow was love. Mm-hmm. And it was, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And it was, don't worry about making a lot of money. You have food, you can pay your bills. What is it that feeds you? What is it that feeds you? So, and I know that sounds super tacky or cliche, not tacky, but cliche, but it's really, 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 really true. It's purpose, bro. It's purpose. And, and I think one of the things, you didn't ask me this, but I'll share this, is one of my biggest fear. I don't fear much anymore in my life, but one of my biggest fears is living a life unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's just about, and, and to, con- to counter that and to try to live on purpose is, um, is doing just that, being purposeful in, in my living and in my actions. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know any other way. Right. And and I feel like the world has, my life, I shouldn't say the world, my life at every turn has rewarded me for choosing to live in purpose and not in fear. Okay. You know, this job, the lives of men, the success there, the fact that I, you know, moved into Switzerland, the fact, even partners that I've had, um, everything, bro. Like, and I don't want to, I get goosebumps saying this, but it's true. My entire life has been... Uh, a litmus test, if you will, of, or the truth test of what it looks like when you live in purpose. Mm. Mm. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, man. I wonder what got you there. You know, I can tell you what got me there, you know, and, and though I am only in the beginning stages of learning myself to the point where I'm living in my purpose every day, not just sometimes. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the reason 
that you find it so important to live in your purpose is because you have an awareness of your mortality. Yeah. Uh, that is my reason. Yeah. Uh, you know, nothing I mean, is ever promised. Tomorrow is ever promised. Is never promised. But I want to know that if I left tomorrow, the people that I love know that I love them. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times have I told you, you know, random text or Jay, I love you. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. Mm-hmm. And there's no need for me to stress out too much about the what is. You know, it's really about just knowing that at this moment, with the seconds that I've been blessed to, to experience, mm-hmm. that I'm doing my best to, you know, live with purpose. That's it. Um, again, you are one of those individuals that, you know, inspires so many, including myself, to, uh, to take those steps, to take those steps, step outside. And when I said, you know, before, when I say as a person who, I described you as a person who uh, understands it from the outside, mm-hmm is because you understand what your, what your humanity is. Mm-hmm. And then as a result of that, you're able to like expand out of your, out of your body, out of your skin bag, if mm-hmm. you will, and really focus, it, you know, focus in on yourself as a soul and then understand the broader implications, the broader implications on how people affect you, on how a certain job affects you, mm-hmm. or, and how you affect them. I think it's... Uh, I don't know where we're at right now, but, Bro. you know, we, we just went uh, somewhere. But I feel like that is the gem of the podcast right there. Bro. Yeah. That's why the lives of men was, was necessary. Yeah. And um, I was very proud of you when you took that, you know, when you took that the leap. the leap, the leap of faith to actually believe in yourself and make it happen. And also through that, it opened up an array of opportunities for you, right? An array of experiences. You were able to land a show with, with Yahoo News. Yeah. We're able to interview a few notable yeah, yeah. Uh, cats, Beats, you know, Swiss Beats. Swiss, Kevin Love. Yeah. How was uh, that, John man? T. It was dope. I mean, it was, talk about living on purpose. In purpose and on purpose. It, it was classic case of me having done this, built out this body of work. And if you remember, um, I had you when I was living in, in the Bronx and we were doing the shows. I was, uh, recording these these kind of really rudimentary very like no frills interviews and we were sitting down and I was like I'm shooting these because I want to one start practicing but also I want to use these as proof of concept so that if and when I get an opportunity to pitch this mm. I can show me on camera and all that right 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 so all of that brought to bear I I you know year later I'm talking to Yahoo and I was like yeah I've done this body of work I want to create a show and they loved it, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they put me on camera with no experience, and it was just like, yo, let's do this. And I think, again, it was just timely, right? Me Too was, ha- was happening, or it just had just happened. Thank you. And, um, you know, we, we just talked, and it became, it, became, um, it became a reality. And when I look back on it, I'm so grateful because, mm-hmm. again, everything that you, you do in life, whether you realize it in the moment or not, is preparing you for the next thing. What I learned in terms of just production in terms of like being on camera mm-hmm. being able to le- learn how to speak in sound bites all of that has served me well right. not just for all the subsequent speaking engagements that I've done but also for this job that I'm in now right. um, so again it's just it's been a beautiful experience man and that that show I wish we could have done more there was issues beyond me that they had to deal with but um, that show was a really important milestone in, in that journey of, of what I've been doing, what I set out to do with the lives of men. Right, right. You know, um, the topics that you had on the show were were 
Really, really good. Um, Kevin Love spoke about mental, mental health, health yeah. right? He had a he had a, an anxiety attack in the middle of a game, um, in like 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, LeBron was on the t- on the team at that point. LeBron was screaming on him. He probably was. No, you know, LeBron is known for that. But you know, he he had a, an anxiety attack in the middle of the game, <laughs> called a timeout, and went ran into the uh, locker room. And he was like, that for him was the the thing that start, sparked his journey uh, around mental health and the mm-hmm. importance of that. And then I spoke to Swiss about, you know, my goal with the show was to talk to these notable people about things that you normally would not hear them talk about. Right. So I had a conversation with him about relationships and about him being a husband to Alicia and being a dad and, you know, all of that and brotherhood, you know, his relationship with DMX and, mm-hmm. you know, and Jay-Z and all that. So it was, it was dope, man. It was, it was a great experience. That's what's up. You also had this one cat. Oh, he was a white dude. Uh, Matt McGorry. Matt, oh, he was talking about consent. Yeah, Matt McGorry. And was it like an app where uh, folks can be like, yes, we consent mm-hmm. to like have sex or yeah. some shit like that? So, yeah, so that, that episode, we were just talking about Me Too and like mm-hmm. the, the role of men that men have, whether it's comfortable or not to just ask for consent every every step of the way. Right. And I asked him, how do you do that, right? That doesn't seem natural, you know? In the dating scene, we're, we're all taught just to kind of, you know, feel things out. Right. And he was like that there's these apps now where it's almost like, you know, you ask the woman to sign an affidavit or a mm. release form. Mm. And I'm just like, doesn't that take the, the, the you yeah. know, sexiness out of things? And he was like, yo, well, that's, that's just the world we live in. But that struck me because it's like, it's that serious. Right, right. It's that yeah. serious. It's that serious, and Me Too movement came, and it's still here. Uh, it, it suffered some I think it's Me setbacks. Too 2.0. What's that? I think it's just Me Too 2.0. Like, I think, you know, we've seen a wave of just, like, I don't think we've ever seen it stop, right? Like, mm-hmm. from the initial, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins and the um, Bill Cosby stuff. I don't think it stopped. Like, that initial wave of just, like, it felt like every day was, like, a new big name. Right, right. Um, but now we still hear about instances where there's misconduct taking place. And I just think that's just signaling how the society's changing. You know, and I think I wrote something about this. And, you know, I know in our circle of friends, we often talk about this is, you know, we're, we're taught that when we're dating, um, we try. Right. And that first no is kind of like, oh, no, it's an invitation. It's right. not a no. It's an right. invitation to keep trying. Yeah. And if you don't. What, what's happened? It's happened to me, and it's for sure that it's happened to you that, you know, one, you feel like less of a man if you give up, but also women have been like, oh, you, you know, you gave up already? Like, and, you know, you get policed on both sides, right. you know? Right. So I think that's just how, you know, going back to the consent conversation, it's really difficult to navigate because you don't know what to do as a man. Right. You're taught one thing, and you're taught that that, you know, over time you learn that that's the wrong thing to do. But then that wrong behavior is actually reinforced by the very victims of sexual harassment. It's just, it's a fucking clusterfuck. Yeah, right, right. And so it, it really does, you know, throw you for the loop. But I just think that when it comes to that, it, you know, you know what's right and you know what's wrong. Right. And whether you have a daughter or sisters or a mom or whatever, I think you know what's right and wrong. And I think it's, it's always up to us to police our own behaviors. Right. And, um, yeah, you know, but I, I think overall, um, highlighting these things, highlighting the misconduct, um, you know, even, even situations that are gray, um, you know, situations that are gray that are... Very rarely is it black and white. Right. Very, very rarely. Very rarely, mm-hmm. right? But I think 
even the gray instances are still still sending a message to folks that are concerned with uh, what it means, you know, to, to have consent. Um, and it was a study in the New York Times that said, I think it was like 70, you know, I don't want to misquote it, 70% or something like that, of students that they had interviewed uh, at several universities, you know, they interviewed the men, and that they didn't know that um, if you were having sex with someone that was inebriated, and you yourself was also inebriated, that you can still be liable for sexual wow. misconduct. I didn't know that just, you know? just, just now. Right. So, sad for the uh, person that's involved in that. Both, you know, like if you don't know what mm-hmm. you're doing and you get caught up in some charges. Also, obviously, uh, you know, it's terrible for the victim. But it, it just shows us that we have to have more discussion about what is consent and what is not mm-hmm. consent. And you know what? If it takes us doing these apps... I mean, it's not sexy, mm-hmm. but it's going to keep a lot of dudes out of jail. But listen, and, and I, you know, look, I think whatever whatever works, but I think there's nothing wrong, you know, in dating and in, and in that relationship in those moments. It can be incredibly sexy for you to ask a woman, hey, can I kiss you? Of course. In this moment. You know, that could be like, oh my God, yes, you know, and like, it just depends. You got to read the moments. And I think that's why, again, bringing it full circle about the work around the lives of men really being about self-mastery and self-discovery, mm-hmm. you have to get to the point of being so in tune with yourself as a man, right, mm-hmm. and as an, an individual, that you are very clear on reading people and intuition. And, you know, we often talk about intuition only being on the women's side, right? right. Men have intuition, right. and we just, we're just taught that we don't. Um, if you get so in tune with yourself as a man, where... You can get to a point where you're in an engaging in, in interaction with someone and feel that that person is uncomfortable, then you can back off, right? Right? Or you can know yourself so well that you know that if you ask a question in a certain way to a list, you, you can get the response that you want right. and not ruin the moment. And I think that's, you know, it's a skill, but it also comes with you knowing yourself so well. Right. And I think that's what I want men to do. Right. I want men to do that work so badly so that we can start to live fully and freely and not worrying about, is this woman going to accuse me of sexual assault, right? Well, you know, if, if you have an intuition of yourself and who you are, then hopefully you can reduce the risks of that. Right. That's right. not to say that there are, you know, women out there that unfortunately have bad intentions. Like, there are men out there that have bad intentions, but I think it, it, it's always rooted in yourself first. Right, right. You know, and it's a lot easier to have this conversation with someone you know, our age, right? Uh, but the people, the young men that I think about are those, uh, you know, 18, 19-year-olds, 17-year-olds that are raging with high testosterone, you know, and that's probably all they ever think about. You know what's funny, though, bro? I have, so shout out to JD. Um, love you, yes. kiddo. Um, she's a sophomore at Binghamton right mm. now. And you'll be really, really proud of her because you've known her since she was in the belly. Of course. She is one of the causes I had a conversation with her the other day. JD's my daughter, by the way, y'all. Um, she is really passionate about women and violence against women. Mm. So she's taking it upon herself at school right now. She's a, actually today she had a program around um, having a conversation around sexual violence and misconduct. Mm. And while you're talking about these young men who are raging hormonally. Right. What gives me a lot of um, hope is that the conversations are still being had at that level. Whereas they may not have ever been had in the past, they're being had now. And young women like my daughter and like others and young men like her friends 
are engaging in these dialogues where I don't remember when we were in Buffalo ever having a conversation around what sexual misconduct is. Right. And so I'm hoping that in the future, you know, whether it was sparked by us, our generation, or the generations that, that preceded us, at the very minimum, the, the generations that are following us are at least engaging in the conversation. Yeah. And that's great. That's good so, to hear. Yeah. That's good to hear. Because um, like you said, there wasn't much of that when we were coming up. Right. Uh, so... Also through the lives of men, you discuss a lot about the importance of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, or have you ever, I know that you've done therapy before. Are you still doing therapy? Yeah, I mean, therapy to me is uh, on par with working out and mm-hmm. journaling. It is a life and death thing for me. Right. If I'm not in therapy, if I'm not working out, if not, you know, some spiritual practice, I feel like I'm dying slowly. Right. And that sounds super dramatic, but it's true. So, um, so yeah, I'm still in therapy, and what I'm tr- exploring more of is just different modalities of therapy. Mm. So not just kind of sitting down in front of someone and talking, but right. it's also exploring what it looks like to do body work, mm. right? And, and understanding my body somatically and, you know, placing where I'm storing tension and hurt and pain. So an example of that is I, and this is a personal note I'm, I'm happy to share, is that I suffer from sleep apnea, so I snore. Mm. Um, do you? I didn't know that. <laughs> you have stories. Bro, I got videos. Forget <laughs> stories. I got videos, man. Let's not make this about my story. <laughs> um, but, you know, I realized that I, I hold a lot of uh, grief in mm-hmm. my respiratory system. Right. And usually if you look up somatic, uh, different somatic modalities, you know, a lot of people hold a lot of grief in their lungs. Um, or they feel like, obviously, you know, if you've been in relationships where you don't feel unheard, mm-hmm. you feel you have a lot of tension in here. So a lot of my therapy now is exploring where in my body am I holding a lot of that trauma mm-hmm. and then releasing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of therapy in whatever way it works for you. Um, and I also don't think it's a, it needs to be uh, something that you do when things are going wrong or where the house is burning down. Of course not. You know, it's very much a preventative thing as well. For sure, for sure. Yeah, you know, I just recently, as you know, I started taking therapy. And I say recently, but it's been over a year. Uh, taking or going? Taking therapy, I, going to therapy. Going to therapy. Going to therapy. Yeah. Right? There's a, there's, an, there's a lack of autonomy there. Mm. You're taking it as opposed to actively engaging in it. Right, right. You're going to therapy. Gotcha. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I'm going to therapy. I'm still understanding my body. Uh, you know, I've spoken to Omar Davis. Shout out to him. You know, Omar Davis, he talks a lot about understanding tension in your body. He brought up the fact that you have to be so uh, very cognizant of where your arm is, where your shoulder is, you know, where you hold tension, like, like you said yourself. And I realized that most of my tension, um, and I was thinking about this uh, before I did the meditation class with uh, Omar, was, was in my head. You had a lot of headaches? Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of headaches, um, but I do feel like it's heavy, like, you know, yeah, weightiness. You know just weightiness. weightiness, and it's like I'm carrying around a lot of unresolved emotions that I need to just, like, just release, you know, at some point or somewhere, and, uh, and I think therapy allowed for me to sit down with those thoughts and, um, and kind of, like, one by one, mm-hmm. resolve them. Resolve them, put them to the side, kind of like recycle them, and um, and as a result of that, I feel lighter. I feel that I've made the path clear for myself to do what I want to do and what makes me happy. Uh, sometimes you know what makes you happy, but there's so much standing in the way. 
Um, and, and I felt therapy has really helped me just say, you know what? That's not necessary. We can put this to the corner. That's not a priority. And just cut through the fat. I love I love that analogy, and I think it's uh, you know Mary Marie Kondo, no the the I think she's Korean or Japanese, but she's got a show on like one of the cable news channels, and she's like made a name for herself for organizing, right? She has like a system mm. for organizing clothes and cleaning the house, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what therapy is. Mm. You're Mary Kondoing your life, and mm-hmm. she's helping you put certain things in place and just clearing space mm-hmm. for what actually needs to happen and occur. Right. So I love that. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what I needed. When, you know, when the first time I sat down with someone and um, that person asked me, what is it that has to get done like right away? Mm. I had like about a list of like 20 things. Mm. Like I couldn't even decipher what had to get done right away as opposed to like what could get done in about a week. Why not just being, right? I think that's the thing, yeah. you know, when we, we focus so much on these task lists and to-do lists and it's just like, yo, why don't we just focus on being, mm-hmm. you know? And in the moment, who you are, I, I don't know, I just don't, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but it's, that's really what it's about for me, at least, is exploring more ways of being and less doing. The, there's a process to, to get to that point of just being. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a process for me, like if I'm moving into a new apartment, uh, there's a process for me to just like sit in my sit on my couch and just enjoy my living room. First, I have to like remove the boxes. <laughs> I have to put everything in place before I actually feel comfortable in just sitting on my couch yeah. and doing nothing. Yeah. There's work for you to get to the point where you're being. You know, in order for you to be being, you have to be light. So you have to like let go. You have to let go of a lot. You know, in talking about therapy, um, for a long time you've spoken about the profound impact. Of, of journaling. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about that because you've always spoken about that and I've attempted journaling several times. I did see benefits. Mm-hmm. I couldn't keep a consistent routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, lately, due to the pandemic, I have. Uh, but are you still journaling and are you still seeing magic results? 100%. I think for me, the reason it's important, one, I've been journaling for as long as I can remember. I remember that one of my aunts bought me the, the journals with the little locks on them back in the day, and mm-hmm. that just sparked my interest. But <clears throat> I think for me, what journaling does is that it allows me, because, because I'm a, such a lone wolf, mm-hmm. and because the work that I do on myself is so deep and harsh, not harsh, it's so deep and very personal to me, mm-hmm. and it's not something that I choose to talk to a lot of people about, right. I have to document it somewhere, I have to release it, I have to put it somewhere. And so for me, that's journaling. And when I journal, it does two things. One, it, it's a self-accountability measure. So it, uh, when I revisit it, it allows me to see where I've been, where I'm at currently, and where mm-hmm. I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a checks and balances. But it's also an opportunity for me to see where the patterns uh, keep occurring. Uh, if I'm writing in 2020 uh, about shit that I've been writing about since 2015, right. I'm like, yo, Jason, what are you doing to address that? Right, so it's this, this mm-hmm. constant, you know, it's a measure of where I'm at and where I continue to repeat patterns in my life. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's important to me, but I think it's just because of the way that I process. Mm-hmm. That's why it works for me. It may not work for you. It may your your journaling may come in the form of this podcast. Um, so I think it's just you know, while I encourage people to try it, I don't think it's the this it's not the only way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I was gonna say I always like the idea of being able to give my journal to my future kids oh well that's my idea with books that's why um there was a time where 
I used to order books on Kindle, mm -hmm. and then I stopped doing that. I read The Kite Runner. Mm -hmm. Have you read mm -hmm. The Kite Runner? And The Kite Runner was really about this one child having a connection to his dead mother that was more intense and connecting than the own relationship he had with his living father. Mm -hmm. And that was because his dead mother had left him yeah. uh, you know, a library of her books. Mm -hmm. So he felt that he knew her more intimately. It's interesting when, when you talk about journaling, first of all, when, when anybody speaks to you, they, they can tell that you journal. Really? Um, yeah, because, too. I don't know, when you speak, it, it appears, no, no, it is, it feels that what you're saying is well thought out and that you've expressed it some way, somehow, <laughs> before. Mm. You know, it doesn't, appear as if you're racing as if you were like on a you know in a marathon trying to chase a thought mm. uh, because you've already done it mm. you know you've already done the work before you know you step out of your apartment you know um, yeah and so that's why uh, there's a certain uh, pace to how you talk mm. you know there's a, there's a certain comfortability that you have with with your emotions because mm. I felt like you've done the work behind closed doors and I think a lot of people, can learn from that. Uh, you only have so many opportunities to make a first impression yeah. on people, or you only have so many opportunities to actually find the right words to truly connect with someone at a specific time, or at a, you know at a specific moment. And I feel like if you do the work behind closed doors, you find the right moments mm -hmm. to say the right things. But yeah, I think you do that pretty well. Um, you know, I've known you, and you know, we've always spoken about things that have impacted us in our lives. One thing that had impacted you was that you became a father at a very early age. Oh, yeah. You know, I think you were, no, I know, because I was there, mm -hmm. you were still in college, uh, not yet graduated. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even before that, you were always someone that was about his business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remember you were one of the first dudes that I knew that had a, a dope internship, mm -hmm. right? Or like had a job waiting for him um, after graduation, yeah. right? But but still, you know, I'm sure even that uh, couldn't wow. give you a sense of preparation for being a father. Wow. Like, talk to me about that experience and how that impacted you. Yeah, to give people a timeline because I think the timeline is important so they understand. I graduated undergrad May of '01. Mm -hmm. um, my partner at the time um, told me the evening before graduation that she was oh. pregnant. Uh, and, uh, and so she was, you know, a few months already in advance. And so graduated May of 01. September 11th of 01 mm. happened. My daughter was born in November. Shout out to JD, young yeah. woman that just recently earned a scholarship, right? Yeah. To the university. Yeah. Doing her thing. And, you know, we just spoke about what she's doing out word, there. Word. But yeah. Um, so, you know, from May to November is five months, six months, five months, six months. Um, she was born in that time frame. And in that time frame, I had to, like, start a new job, mm -hmm. had to pass my Series 7. So for those of you who don't know, Series 7 is one of the, the, the most um, rigorous exams in finance, right? Like, I had to pass that to keep my job. Right. So contending with all that and the emotions around that, um, it, it was a lot. But it was the best thing that happened to me. Mm -hmm. Not because, not just because of the... the person that was born and changed my life right. but because of what it taught me and the you know the, the level of focus and experience um 
and how I laugh because all of you are experiencing father, no, not you per se, but like, <laughs> but you know, our circle of friends are just right. having babies. 99.9% of them. Right. <laughs> having babies now. And I'm just like, yo, I don't know if I want to do that again, right, but right. you know, I think it's, it was a beautiful thing and it needed to happen the way it happened yeah. um, when it happened. Um, but you know, it's just going back to love. It just taught me that, um, love being the most powerful, my favorite, and most powerful word in the English language uh, taught me about the selflessness of love, right? And just being able to like give of yourself in ways that you never thought you could. Mm. Um, and so while it hasn't been easy, we have been co-parenting JD since she was three years old. Mm. Uh, so for 15 years, uh, you can imagine the, the ups and downs that that comes with. Uh, it has been the most, by far the most fulfilling uh, experience of my mm. life because it has brought me back to myself Unlike journaling has, unlike mm. therapy has, mm. unlike breakups have, being a father to a young lady and co-parenting her has brought me back to me in ways that nothing else could. Mm. You know, swallowing my pride, unconditional love, patience, patience yeah. compassion. So yeah, it's yeah. it's a beautiful experience. Yeah, I can only imagine that because you know we were cut from the same cloth. Yeah. But when I graduated from college. You know, uh, I was out there in the streets just uh, doing everything but sleeping. Well, but think about it, as, as, as young people should, right? Like, you go to college, you graduate, you get a good job, and it's like, yeah, enjoy that. Right. I, I didn't have that opportunity. Right. Um, I enjoyed myself, no doubt, but it wasn't to the degree of, you know, just having that, like, being able to party Monday through Thursday and, go, you know, going to work right, right. every following morning. It's just like, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it was just, that was my experience. Just thinking about those days, you know, my mother used to tell me, um, tú crees que tú estás acabando, pero es con tu vida que tú estás acabando. <laughs> you know, pretty much that you think you're living a life, but, you know, you're actually living a life that's a danger to your life. Um, yeah, just doing the most, just doing the most. But I, I can see, you know, me being in your position and having that motivation for, this, for the sense of, like, really giving the daughter mm -hmm. that I have, the stability and the comfort that I wanted her to have. You know what I compare it to? I yeah. compare it to, you know, we're both Michael Jordan fans, right? Mm -hmm. And you know how you admire, specifically you, more than anyone that I know, admire the level of focus and the way that he took, the way he motivated himself. Like, mm -hmm. he took any little thing. It was just like, oh, word? You, mm -hmm. you said my sneakers are scuffed? Right, right, right. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to give yeah, you 60. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is... That's what I can equate it to, okay. you know, in terms of, you know, the level of focus and the level of motivation that you need to, to rise up to that mm -hmm. occasion. That, to me, was being a, a dad, whereas right. for Mike, it was something else, you know, right. for everybody else, it's something else. That, that's the closest thing that I can compare it to, okay. that, that can give you that feeling that, that of relatability. Right. You know what I mean? I got gotcha. you. Just compared yourself to MJ. But I mean, you know, the goat. <laughs> Just saying. Goat, goat. But, um, yeah, you know, and, 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 you know, and again, having a child is such a blessing. Hopefully God blesses me with the child at some point. Um, you know, but knowing you and knowing how creative you were, you know, just by... Uh, you know, again, how you dress, but, you know, the thoughts that you had at 18 or 19 when I first met you. Do you think you would have ex explored that side of yourself earlier if uh, 
who hadn't been a young. It's father. hard to say. It's hard to say because I think she definitely becoming a father at an early age definitely um, expedited that process mm-hmm. in my life um, of of taking myself seri- more seriously and um, thinking of, about things that were less frivolous, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in my life. So maybe. Um, maybe it would have taken me a little longer to arrive where I'm at. Um, but I think I was on a collision course from the moment I was born. I was on a collision course mm. to being and trying to become the fullest representation of myself. Okay. I really believe that. That might sound super esoteric to some people. Right. It might sound super granola. Um, but I do feel like, you know, like me, like you, like others have been put on this earth to be absolute stardust in the making. Right, mm-hmm. stardust, and 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 I believe that with my whole being, and so it was just a matter of time. It, was, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just it just so happened that for me, it happened earlier. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I guess I don't have a, such a poetic way of like, you know, reflecting on that because for me and and you and I both mm-hmm. share this experience is that being first generation. Uh, Americans from immigrant families to me I felt that that was the most important reason why I didn't allow myself to explore creative avenues um, what was I was a you know a you had responsibilities I had responsibilities you know just to be more specific um, I had I felt the need to make a certain amount of money, as much money, not, not just a certain amount of money, as much money as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, and that pressure was, was pretty thick, and it came from many different angles. Mm-hmm. So in order to get away from that, you know, it's been a process for me, and I'm glad that I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say to be financially irresponsible, mm-hmm. like, no, like, there's levels to this, right? Um, I'll get the bag. Yeah, always get the bag. Always get the bag. Right. As long as it's not detrimental um, or doesn't take away from you, you know, if you're not sacrificing your sense of self for mm-hmm. the bag, mm-hmm. go get it. Right, right, yeah. There was a there was a time where I felt that you had to sacrifice yourself for you the bag. Yeah, no, you know, that's um, what we're taught, though. Right, right, right. So, so I think that, even though, you know, I didn't have the experience of being you know, a young father, and and you're saying that maybe that also didn't play a role um, as to why you turned out to be, you know, creative or focused more on being creative later in life. Um, But but maybe it was the fact that we were, you know, first-generation-born Americans from immigrant families who had these also, who who had these pressures. Uh, I want to be, you know, very cognizant of if I'm raising a child, or if I'm talking to my niece, mm-hmm. uh, by the way, uh, Karina just had... Shout to Isla. Yeah, yeah, Welcome shout to Isla. Isla to yes, I got, a, I got another niece. Uh, she's about four or five days old. Congrats, my brother. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, yeah, just wanting to instill in them this sense of freedom early on. Can I say something about that? I think um, whether it's having a daughter at an, an early age whether it's being a first-generation American, um, whether it's feeling like you have to be safe because you need to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. all of those things are outcomes of one basic thing, and it's fear. Mm-hmm. So what I would say to you is focus less on 
you know, am I teaching my daughter or my child that they have to be a certain profession to make money? Mm-hmm. Focus less on that mm-hmm. and focus more on not instilling fear into them. Your Specifically, your own fears, right? Because that's what that is. It's like our parents put their fears into us and that's what made them tell us we you have you have to be an attorney you have to be in finance you have to be in that i think that's what it boils down to so if we can be mindful of how are we parenting our children are we parenting them from a place of fear are we parenting them from a place of abundance and love and Mm -hmm. that 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 the world is open for them Mm-hmm. That is the difference, I think, one of the differences between the way white folks parent their children mm-hmm. and the way that we parent ours, mm-hmm. right? Because we inherently have ingrained in our DNA in many ways this sense of lack and this sense of not being enough. And and I think that's coming from that place of lack is what dictates everything else, whereas they come from a place of abundance. You know, white kids show up and they... They show up, whether they're mediocre or not, they feel like they belong there. Mm-hmm. And they feel like they not only belong there, that they deserve to be mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. right? And that's because they're operating from a place of abundance. Mm-hmm. Whereas we show up to the same environment, and we're just like, yo, I'm so grateful to be here. Right. Thank you, right? And I think that's a good thing to have, that humility. But that, to, to me, that's part of what I'm trying to change in my own daughter and what I hope you change in your children when you have them is... You know, instilling them this innate belief in that, yo, you just deserve to be here because you des- because you are alive. Right. Your right. lived experience alone makes you worthy. Right. Not what school you went to, not because your dad was able to afford putting you, you know, or raising you in Jersey. None of that matters, right? It's about the, the level of self-love, right? Self-esteem that you're instilling in your children that then carries them forward in their lives. I think that's what our role is. Um, in terms of, you know, um, breaking breaking the the, the familial and ancestral traumas that we've inherited, right, right, as yeah. it relates to children specifically. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, and I would hope that many of our friends are also taking that approach, and I, and I see I that they are. They are. Yeah. I see that yeah. they are. Um, but it, it's going to be crazy when you turn around and you look at these at these children and you say, "Wow, you and I had different lives." You know, good. Right. You know, because and and if I feel if I can feel that I had something to do with that, that I released you from all this burden, this illusionary uh, burden that you that you thought you were supposed to carry, uh, but you didn't have to, just to be light and just to be fluid in this life, then um, you know I would be very proud as a as a, as a father, as an uncle, as a godfather, but, as a but mentor. That, but that brings us back to the very spine of this whole conversation which is self-love self-improvement self-reflection that doesn't happen unless you do the work right for for on yourself for sure and it's a daily thing you know i've been this this whole pandemic has had me so focused on uh you know and i say this all the time and i'm not you know every single time i have a guest I, i talk about it but i think it's just such a thing that is new to me, but is giving me so much peace, which is doing something every day that puts me at ease and makes me feel that I'm learning. And that I'm learning about something that I truly want to learn about, not about what society tells me that I need to learn in order to advance, in order to be in the know. You know, with all of this information, I just really want to be able to dictate my day in a way where I'm confident that okay 
this is serving that individual that I want to become. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is with books. A lot of it is with books. A lot of it is with conversations like the one you and I are having right now. But yeah, just being more intentional. Just being more intentional. We can we can go back and forth with that, yeah. with that word. But um, outside from being a young father and sons of, of immigrant parents, we were also raised in single parent homes, mm-hmm. right? My mother, uh, you know, my father passed away when I was six. I was six at the time, June twenty first. That had an impact on me, and I'm still processing that impact. Mm-hmm. Have you fully processed the impact that you had? You know, being raised in a single parent household, no. uh, I'm sure you've come a long way through yeah. that, right? It's a, it's a lifelong thing because I think I realize as I enter different phases in my life, I realize what I needed my father for, um, and the and the need and the yearning for my father changes as I enter those spaces. Mm. So while I've forgiven him. I've done the work to forgive him and to understand that he was a human being, that he tried his best and all that stuff. Um, I am going to always reckon or deal with the, the impact of his lack of presence because as a man, I'm learning myself on the daily. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think he was the most influential man in my life, not for the reasons you would think. He was the most influential man in my life because of negative confirmation, right? He to- he showed me by his lack of presence what I didn't want to be, mm. right? Uh, so I think from that standpoint, I don't, di- I don't discount that experience. Um, and I've been able to reconcile the fact that he wasn't around um, with my life and how it turned out. Um, there's no guarantee that I would have turned out good, right, or who I am today had he been around. Right. Right? Maybe the fact that he wasn't around is what made me kind of get to this point. So, you know, I still wrestle with the impact of it, you know. And I think I, I also wrestle with things that have nothing to do with my father, that have everything to do with my mom. You know, the fact that uh, I've internalized certain views of masculinity and manhood because of her. Right or wrong, you know, but that, that has definitely impacted me. So, you know, it's it's just my what vantage point and what viewpoint do I want to take. Uh, when, it, when it comes to that. Right, right. But the most important thing I think I've done is release him from, and release myself from the anger that it came with for a really long time in my life. Mm-hmm. And did you do that on your own, or did you no. do that therapy, with the help of therapy? Therapy, partners, mm-hmm. even um, friends, um, colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I'm open to, to receiving information and, and perspective from wherever it comes. But it's been a uh, it's been a lifelong and it will continue to be a lifelong journey. When I'm on my dying bed, my deathbed, they're gonna be things that I wish I had my dad there to ask. Mm. You know, so I've reconciled that part of my life. Okay. Yeah, you know, and I just want to tell you and remind you of how important the work is that you do. Because even your words right now, you may not know it because mm-hmm. your back is to him. But Hansel is, you know, Hansel is a young brother from my neighborhood who's out here. Um, helping us today because uh, my production assistant Sam, shout out to Sam, he couldn't make it today, so he's out here filling in and um, doing, doing, you know, helping us. But he's out here and um, he's uh, listening to every word, man, and he's shaking his head and he's nodding with you. Mm-hmm. And um, just know that you're being heard and you're yeah, having an effect. Shout to you, my bro. Shout to you. You're having an effect, but you know, so we don't have to get too much into yeah, that, yeah. but. 
Just know that you are. Um, another situation that you and I experienced, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of our oh, war man. stories. Probably the reason we became an attorney. <laughs> yes, Miami. The incident in Miami, uh, yeah. you know, where we were physically accosted by police officers. But thankfully, charges were dropped. The case was dismissed. Records expunged. Uh, records expunged. <laughs> uh, but over nothing, dude. Over nothing. So over nothing. We were scared of shit. <laughs> we were. We were. We were. In hindsight. Oh, man, I, don't, I don't want you to put that on record, man. I was tough. Man. I was out there knocking people over, you know? Like, what are you talking about? No, we were talking. Damn, there goes my album. Shit. I was thinking about making an album, too. But, uh, no, it definitely impacted us in a way. Well, I should say me in a way where I changed my major. Uh, as you said, you know, I probably became an attorney as a result of that incident. But it, it changed the way I looked at things. Uh, I'm sure I needed, I would have needed therapy at that time. I was super sensitive to uh, my interactions with police officers, uh, hyper aware of the tone that they would use when they would address me. I was looking for those signs of abuse of power, mm. you know, and and I was upset and I was angry and I used that energy and I applied it to school and I all of a sudden started getting better grades and, and you know and I was able to graduate uh, with a with a good GPA and then end up going to law school. So even though that was a traumatic you know, incident for me, I feel that I used that energy, that frustration, to propel me forward. But the most important thing that I needed to do was come to grips with the trauma with what I was carrying as a result of that incident. So I had to do the work uh, myself as well um, to like release and to understand what occurred and why it occurred. But as far as you, did that incident have an effect on you? And if so, what way? Mm-hmm. It, it had an effect on me, but I think it was more of a reminder and a confirmation of what I thought I had already known, right? Like, I, I knew a six-foot-four black man in this country. It doesn't matter my my education, um, whether I speak Spanish or not. It's like, that's how I, I knew that I showed up in the world in that way. Right. Um, but that was the first instance in which the my experience was that my identity was acted upon, right? Like, my identity was was the reason why that occurred, that experience occurred. Um, whereas before that, my, my identity was just a, a passive, mm. you know, companion along the journey. Something that I was always aware of, but didn't necessarily take the forefront. Um, that was the first time that that had happened. So it was just more of like, it didn't impact me in the sense that it forced me, it, it made me rethink my career, how I want to live my life. It was just more of a reminder of like, yo, this can happen to me, and and it, and it, I was actually lucky that that's all that happened, right? Right, um, and I think more so maybe in the years immediately following the event, it didn't necessarily register with me. I was just happy that it was over or whatever. But when we started to see instances of police brutality every time that that occurs, it brings me back to that moment. Right, that was going to be my next question. It, yeah. ma- it just makes me more grateful that it wasn't worse. Right. Right. And I think if anything resonates with me regarding that incident is that is that I consider myself so lucky that it wasn't worse. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for pointing out uh, the new the recent incidents and, and you know how you look at how you respond to these incidents. So would you say 
that, look, most people are triggered by what has occurred, right, in the, in the past couple of months mm -hmm. or uh, what we've had time to process, when it, whether it's Breonna Taylor, whether it's George Floyd. Um, that would trigger anyone, irrespective of whether they ever had a negative police encounter. Could you find the traces between those events and your triggers yeah. uh, that pertain to that incident? Absolutely. One thing I didn't say early on when we were talking about the lives of men and the inspiration behind it is, remember I launched in February of 2017. Mm. 2016 had, had just happened. Mm. Philando Castillo, Terrence right, Crutcher. Right, 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 right. Um, Eric Garner. All in the matter of, in July, mm -hmm. right? From June to July of 2016. So I'm living this moment and so part of my inspiration to launch the lives of many was in large part uh, as my response to that moment. Very much like what we're living in right now, right? We're going to see a proliferation of movements and initiatives come out of this moment in response to Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, everyone else. And so that is something that I have always said is that, you know, the way that I processed that trauma that right. then in 2016, 2017 was in me not only wanting to address my lived experience as a single, you know, uh, product of a single parent home, but it was also me wanting to experience and process my trauma as a black man in this country. Let's talk about and that. Try, and trying to, through that work of masculinity and identity and content and storytelling and video, right, there's a reason why I structured it the way that I did, right, in very heavy on imagery, very heavy on storytelling. It could have just been a blog. Right? It could have just been something that I didn't put any imagery around. Right. But I wanted to put imagery around it because I wanted to also, while I was healing and helping to have conversations around masculinity, I also wanted to depict what it looked like for a black man to embody self-reflection and journey and healing and something positive in light of a very traumatic series of events. Right, right. Right? So, yeah, so yeah that, that is, it, it is triggering. Um, and it is... In very real, in a very real sense, part of the inspiration for the work that I do. Mm. And then you add the layer of being Latino. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's all of all of that is involved in it. Right. Um, speaking of just navigating this life, uh, understanding your identity, what you and I share in common is a love for literature. Mm -hmm. I, I know you either read. Or did research on Nelson Mandela, right? What mm. was it about Nelson Mandela or anybody else, mm. living or dead, that you would say has truly inspired you and um, has either motivated you uh, to be better or has, through their work, through their life, given you lessons, gems uh, for you to carry to yeah. this day? So M Madiba, which is his right. given name, um, Nelson Mandela's his... Anglo name, is someone who, from very early age, I was intrigued by, right? We learned of Nelson Mandela in middle school, high school, when he was still in prison. He wasn't released from prison until I think it was like 94, 95, when I was just graduating from high school. So this guy, this iconic figure, uh, who had given his life to a cause that was bigger than him, for a country that was bigger than him, to me, what resonated the most was he was an embodiment of values that I hope to, you know, live, right? Which is compassion, which is love, which mm. is forgiveness, mm. right? Like, this dude spent 20-plus years in jail yeah. 
And he came out, one of the first things he was asked was like, are you now going to try to do everything you can to exact revenge on the people that put you in jail? He was like, no. What, what, what do I gain from that? Right? That level of forgiveness to me, it's just like, I don't know anybody in my life, maybe my mom, but not even then, not even her, who would experience something like that, unfairly unfair and unjust treatment, and come out of that and still be willing to love its, his enemy. I think that was just incredible. So for me, that stuck with me. Um, years later, I was able to um, travel to Morocco and I was able to find and buy what I consider my my baby. It was a, a, a masterpiece painting of his, of his image that I carry to this day. And then years later, I was able to interview, which you came, I interviewed um, Ndaba Mandela, right. one of his grandsons, yeah. you know, at the Soho House. And I was able to have a conversation about you know, his grandfather and what he taught him. And, you know, so to me, that was a great way and a full circle moment for me to tie into this legendary figure that I've always held near and dear to me as an embodiment of the values of someone that actually lives the values that he says he puts out in the world. So that to me is what I want to do in my life is be able to say, look, if I'm, if I'm about vulnerability, right, if I'm about tenderness, if I'm about love, and if I'm about growth and evolution, then like Nelson Mandela did in his life of you know living these values I want to do the same thing right and so when I leave this earth if I leave in this moment or in 20 years 30 years from now I want to be able to have people say you know he not to compare myself to Mandela I know you're going to say that but you Mandela know, and MJ right <laughs> I want I want people to say you know Jason's work was about vulnerability and love he lived up he mm. lived up those values Unequivocally, and right. and so that's that to me is why he sticks out in my mind. Right, right. Anyone else? Anyone else that sticks out? Um, you know, I don't really idolize too many people. Mm. I mean, I admire a few people, but I don't idolize too many people because I realize that like them, and like me, they were they're human beings. You know, so I can say the Obamas of the world. I can say the, you know, the Jay Zs, the Biggies of the world. Like you know, yeah. all these names, but right. I, I think they're all men and they're all flesh and blood like me. Um, I just try to, to be the best version of myself yeah. as I can. Yeah, yeah. And, and if anything, I just admire real people. And when I say real people, are people that are actually uh, attainable to me, right? Someone that I admire deeply is someone that you and I both have in common is NASA, our fraternity brand, right? right? right. Like older gentleman, um, he taught us so much, bro, right. about just our diasporic value, right? Like just the value of our identity, Dude, like, he is a hero of mine. Mm. Um, and I can point to so many other people that are actually attainable, that we can pick up the phone and call versus, you know, a guy like an Obama, right, who is an iconic figure that we can all relate to and be inspired by, but is somewhat unattainable to us. Right, right. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, what, one thing that I appreciate is our back and forth when it comes to sharing books. You actually gifted me... Uh, the Way of the Superior Man. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Uh, I think you and I both read Celestine Prophecy. Mm -hmm. You know, an oldie but goodie. Mm -hmm. You know, fiction book written by uh, James Redfield, mm -hmm. uh, where the main character and it takes a journey to find insights. So, you know, such we resonated such a, such an appropriate storyline uh, because it was and, and is a testament to what we're talking about right now, which is finding lessons, insights. Uh, to contribute to a fundamental shift in the way that we think uh, in order for us to like just level up, raise our energy, 
vibration levels, you know? And, um, and that book made me hyper aware, and you and I, we wrote back and forth about it, hyper aware of how I felt whenever I did a specific task or how I felt when I had a specific conversation or how I felt when I had a specific conversation with a certain person. Um, it made me really truly uh, understand how energy really affected who I am and yeah, and, and how energy is who I am, right? Because you also give off energy. You can change someone's day, you know, as cliche as it may sound, with a smile, mm -hmm. you know, or, or by saying the right words or being in the right emotional state to be able to say the right things to someone that may be struggling. Yeah, so, you know, I appreciated uh, our dialogue back and forth with Celestine Prophecy. Um, also, one of your favorites in you know, you always you would always talk about this book, uh, The Alchemist. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that book, yeah. briefly, if you can. Why why that book impacted you so yeah, much? Yeah, I mean, I think for the very reasons it's impacted millions of people, and I think I've evolved from that being my favorite book to to others since then. But mm -hmm. I think that was definitely a foundational um, book in the in the canon of of literature that I've uh, that I consider important in terms of my evolution. Uh, yeah. But you know that because it was. You read that book, it's such a quick read, but you read that book and it, it has different messages for you at different times. Right. But the idea that your personal treasure, your mm -hmm. your gift is is inside you, right? Like we, we often think like, I forget his name, the, the character's name. Um, I think it was Santiago. Santiago. Yeah. Like Santiago's out there looking for the treasure. For the treasure, um, right. But he realizes that the treasure is in him, yeah. that he's the treasure. Right. Um, and so I think that was such a profound thing for me to understand and, and internalize at a, at a time where I was embarking on a spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. So maybe that it became my favorite book in large part because of the, when I read it um, and the timing, and, and you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and I was ready for that lesson at that point. But um, just realizing that it's just so many, it has so many anecdotes mm -hmm. um, around life and, and, and the things that we talk about, it just put it so well and so poetically. Right. Um, right. So I just love that book. But, you know, there's been so many other books since then that I I, I struggle right now to remember after two glasses of, of Macallan. Right, but, right. you know, definitely um, The Alchemist is one of them. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember the, there was a quote uh, by the character uh, played by an old man in the book. Do you remember what that quote was? rich of so many quotes um, you have it yeah it's um that a certain point in our lives we lose control of what's happening to us and our lives become controlled by fate that is the world's greatest lie right I, I said an hour ago that my entire life is a proof point of my thoughts and then my thoughts becoming the house that I've lived in nothing in that implies a lack of intentionality right and that's why I wanted to end off with that quote, Jay Boogie. Your life as you live it is a testament to not believing in this lie. Uh, thank Fuck you that. for being <laughs> a vessel for progress, thank for you. hope, for universality. I hope to have you back soon. Yeah. Before we go, please let us know where we can find you. My God, so thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this conversation. Uh, you can engage with me on all social platforms at Jason two underscores Rosario, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and or at the lives of men. Thank you, Hassan. My man. Easy. All right, peace. I'll give you my number, man. We, we, for we sure, build. bro, for sure, bro.
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, man, because ever since, you know, whenever you would say something, especially specific to your father, man, mm. Hansel was back there just nodding his head, just... He was like, I just don't understand. No, I get it. No, I, I mean, listen, I get it, brother. I get it. Just throw your number in there. I'll text you my, and we could just, we could build. 